Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Decades ago, I said that, you know, I didn't know much about Brazil, still don't. But from what I heard from people who had been there, or people who were from there, uh, because I'd heard a long time ago that outside of Africa, the largest population of black people is in Brazil. But you don't ever see them on television, even on the Brazilian programs. It's every now and then. I mean, somebody will pan the camera, and you'll spot them on the, uh, at, at Mardi Gras time. But where are they the rest of the time? when they make the advertisements and do all the hoopla and whatnot. You wouldn't think that it's, you know, it was just, you would think that there's just a smattering of black people in Brazil. I mean, when I say black people, the black people that look like black people in, Af- in Central Africa. Mm-hmm. But the, the numbers are huge. But they all push back up in those hills. But when it comes to classification, from what I understand, Brazilians will tell you, we don't have any discrimination here. You know, everybody's the same. Color don't make no difference here. This is Brazil. I'm Carol Hills. This is The World. We're a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. I can't breathe. Those words haunted America in 2014 after the death of Eric Garner, a black man who was pinned in a chokehold by a New York City police officer. Now protesters in Brazil are comparing a death there with Garner's, and a Brazilian Black Lives Matter movement seems to be coalescing in response. The World's Rupert Schnoy reports. Just like with Eric Garner, a cell phone video of the incident that allegedly killed Pedro Enrique Gonzaga went viral. It shows the events of February 14th inside a supermarket in an upscale neighborhood of Rio de Janeiro. 19-year-old Gonzaga is on the ground. It looks like a security guard is just laying on top of him. People surround them. Someone says Gonzaga can't breathe. 
He was taken to a hospital where he died from a heart attack. When you see the details of this case, there's just no way you cannot think of Eric Garner. Marcus Trevay is a Detroit native who lives in Brazil and runs a blog about race among Brazilians. He says for days after Gonzaga died, there was conflicting information about what exactly happened. The security guard said Gonzaga, who was at the store with his mother, tried to grab the guard's gun. People have pointed out that's not shown on the video. If you've seen pictures of Pedro Henrique, he's a small frame guy. He's a little bit on the frail side. It was absolutely unnecessary. But not unusual, according to Human Rights Watch. It found police in the state of Rio de Janeiro killed more than 8,000 people between 2005 and 2015. Three-fourths of them were black men. Police say most are legitimate cases of officers defending themselves. Activists say that's an age-old defense officers use across the world. This is not something that's happening in a vacuum. Every time something like this happens that involves a population of African descent, whether you see it in France, whether you see it in the United States, whether you see it in Brazil, is going to galvanize the population because people wake up and say, well, damn, that's the same thing that's happening here. Brazil's history, like that of the U.S., is fraught when it comes to race. Brazil was an important hub of the transatlantic slave trade. It received millions of enslaved Africans. Slavery lasted until 1888, later than anywhere else in the Americas. Marcelo Pachau is a Brazilian economist who teaches at the University of Texas. Brazilian black population are the poorest among the poor. He says things for black Brazilians improved in the early 2000s because of progressive policies and affirmative action. Paixão says for a moment, it looked like Brazil was on a path toward equality. But he says there was a backlash. This transformation helped to upset the white Brazilian middle class. The economy soured, progressive policies ended, and Paixão says economic mobility slowed for black people. In 2015, police fatally shot five young black men out celebrating one of them getting his first paycheck. Last year, a black city councilor in Rio was killed, and no one's been charged with her murder. And a few months ago, Brazilians elected Jair Bolsonaro, a former army captain who's said racist and homophobic things. He's also said police officers should have freedom to do their job. He was uh, talking overtly about the violence. The police should have all liberty to act as they believe it in order to combat the crimes, etc. At the same time, Paixão says, the danger has increased for anyone who takes a lead in opposing the government. Like last month, Brazil's first and only openly gay congressman announced he was leaving his job and the country after receiving death threats. Because he said, I, I cannot bear it anymore. It is very dangerous nowadays to be a leader. Please believe me, the situation over there nowadays is very bad. In the hours after Pedro Enrique Gonzaga's death, no one leader emerged against police brutality. Instead, there were many voices. A student in Sao Paulo posted a video saying if someone suspected of theft, they should be investigated, not killed. Another activist pleaded with people to come out for demonstrations. Don't wait, she says. Don't wait until the racism that kills young people arrives at your house. The messages spread using the hashtag Vidas Negras Importam. That's Black Lives Matter in Portuguese. And so just three days after Gonzaga died, thousands of protesters demonstrated across the country. 
In front of the market where he died, they listed all the names of young black people killed by police. This murder galvanized people. It wasn't just a rally in Rio. It wasn't just in Sao Paulo. You had people in the rallies in Salvador Bahia. This is blogger Marcus Trevay again. People are reaching the boiling point. It's not quite there, but it could overflow if something else like this happens because people are really like at the end of their rope now. More people are finally willing to organize and fight, Trevay says, because they know under Bolsonaro, it may not take long for things to get worse. For The World, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Seattle's a great place to visit because it has, I guess you could say, a little bit of everything, but I like to think of it as a lot of everything. An oral history and online project called Race in the City of Destiny looks at how Tacoma's past racial tensions influence the city today. KNKX reporter Paula Whistle has more. One thing the project examines is something that happened in 1885. In the fall of that year, Tacoma leaders, including the mayor, planned and carried out the expulsion of 700 Chinese residents. They were forced onto trains headed south. University of Puget Sound professor Andrew Gomez says at the time, there was a small Chinatown along Tacoma's waterfront. And it was burned down a couple of days after the expulsion. And so it's actually one of the legacies of it is that uh, the very invisibility of a Chinatown in Tacoma speaks to the enduring legacy of that violence. Gomez launched Race in the City of Destiny and recently received a $50,000 grant to expand it. As for the expulsion of the Chinese, he says a lot of people have never heard about it, even though there's a reconciliation park in the city. He says the narrative of race and displacement continues today, pointing out Tacoma is home to the Northwest Detention Center, where immigrants the U.S. is trying to deport are sent. Paula Whistle, KNKX News. Yeah. Well, you look at what's going on in California. I mean, you know, I don't say that people are racist, but I'm quite sure some racist suspects are up there. All them houses getting burned down. All right. But when they're interviewed, a lot of them say, oh, yeah, it is tragic and all like that, but really ain't no big deal. We'll build back up. I always hear that year after year. Anytime. Mudslides, all of that. Yeah, well, you know, the house is gone, but we'll build it up again. We're all here. (laughs) See, so things, they don't care nothing about no things. And they definitely don't care nothing about people. Primarily, black people. And they definitely don't care nothing about peace. Because they'd like to get a fight started. We're hearing this morning the latest from Alabama, where a deadly tornado hit on Sunday, the deadliest in the United States since 2013. People there will be hoping for federal disaster aid. And this morning we are bringing you an exclusive NPR investigation. It has found that across the United States, white Americans and those with more wealth often receive more federal aid after a disaster than do minorities and those with less wealth. This is because federal aid is allocated based on cost-benefit calculations meant to minimize taxpayer risk and not based on need. NPR's Robert Benincasa and Rebecca Hersher did this investigation, and Rebecca is with us in the studio this morning. Hi, Becky. Hi. So why is this? Why is federal aid not always going to those who need it the most? 
The federal government spends a lot of money rebuilding and preventing future damage after disasters. So they do things like giving out money for a down payment on a new apartment, let's say, after a house is flooded, or a new car if your car is destroyed, or even buying out properties that have flooded repeatedly so no one else will live there. And you might assume that that money is going to people who have the most need. But actually, often it's going to Americans with other safety nets. So give me an example to to help us if you can. So let's take low-interest loans first. So the federal government gives low-interest loans to help families who, let's say, have lost all their belongings in a flood. But you have to have a certain credit score to qualify. And that's to protect the taxpayer, because if you don't pay the money back, we all do. Often, people who have more money have been able to maintain higher credit scores. Here's another example. Property buyouts. So the federal government will sometimes buy properties with federal and local money after a disaster, like floods. And the land gets turned into permanent green space. And in the future, no other homes or businesses or potential lives will be lost. That's the point of the buyout. So if they're buying out property, you have to be a property owner to benefit from that. And people with more wealth are generally more often property owners. Is is that how this is working? Mm -hmm. And there have been barriers to property ownership in the U.S. for various people of various racial groups as well. So even among homeowners, we found white people are more likely to get a buyout. So NPR's Robert Benincasa, he's my reporting partner on this project, he got a list of properties that the federal government has bought. There are about 40,000 of them. Robert filed a Freedom of Information Act request. The uh, federal government denied it. Hmm. NPR sued. Eventually, we won. So when we got it, Robert took all the zip codes associated with the property addresses and linked them to U.S. Census data on demographics. And we found that nationally, sales of flood-damaged homes happened most often in places where the population was more than 85% white. Now, for context, the whole country is about 62% white. Hmm. So that's dramatic. So is the federal government responding to this now that you have seen these numbers and done this investigation? (laughs) They are. So we interviewed David Marstead, who oversees FEMA's buyout program. And he said the program is working if it makes community less risky, if it saves property, and if it potentially saves lives. It's not designed to consider demographics. And he points out correctly that they don't actually choose which properties are offered buyouts. That's what local governments do. So he's not denying that demographics are involved here. I mean, that w- any way you look at this, this is a system that is picking winners and losers. Exactly. And often along racial lines. So I talked to two researchers for this project who have looked across the country at the county level to see how net worth changes after a disaster. And they found that on average, black people lose wealth and white people gain wealth after a disaster. And that effect is even more intense for renters versus homeowners. And there's one more kicker. If the federal government is spending more and more and more money because of climate change, then you're going to see all of these effects exacerbated in the coming years because precipitation is getting more intense. Becky, thanks a lot. Thanks so much. I went to hear uh, Max, uh, I think his name is Max Lerner, right? in Cornell West some years ago at a uh, Christian church, which is where they had their meeting for the public, and invited everybody in there to talk about blacks and Jews. I left there not knowing nothing that I could use and make sense of. They talked for about four hours. I didn't get nothing out of that, none. I mean, it just went on and on. I don't even remember even any, anything that was even talked about. 
other than the only thing I remember about it is the question that I asked, really, <laughs> at the end of the program. I asked, uh, it was Dr. Cornell West, and it was Mr., I think his name, first name is Max, I'm not sure, but his last name is Lerner. He's a professor, and he said he was a Jew, and the subject was blacks and Jews. So I asked a question of both of them. Uh, one question I said with a statement that came before the question, that I have often heard the expression, black people, uh, now let me see, I'm trying to remember how I, said, how I presented it. I said, I have often heard the expression, uh, yes, black people, white people, and Jews. But I've never heard the expression black people, white people, and Christians. Is there any reason, is there any way that anybody can explain why that is? And Dr. Cornell West said, oh, wow. <laughs> he put his hands up to his temple, I mean, you know, and then he just looked at the ceiling and he didn't say nothing else. So it was a long pause, so I didn't think he was going to say nothing else. So then I said, well, Dr. Lerner, I said, do you have an answer to that? And he said, I pass. Hmm. And I said, thank you very much, gentlemen. And I sat down. <laughs> See, I don't argue. When I ask a question, I mean, I just listen to the answer. The answer from Dr. West was, oh, wow. <laughs> the answer from Dr. Lerner was, I pass. <laughs> so I left that four-hour meeting, but I didn't answer to my question other than, oh, wow, and I pass. <laughs> I got what I came after. Today, the House overwhelmingly approved a resolution condemning anti-Semitism and other forms of bigotry, including racism and anti-Muslim discrimination. Democrats introduced this very broad resolution in response to a very specific comment. Last week, freshman Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota suggested that American pro-Israel activists were, quote, pushing for allegiance to a foreign country. Critics, including many Democrats, said she was trafficking in an anti-Semitic smear. The resolution in the House today did not mention Omar by name, but it specifically condemned the pernicious myth of dual loyalty and foreign allegiance. As the House was voting, I spoke with Congresswoman Karen Bass, Democrat of California. She's also chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Welcome to the program. Thank you. You uh, are in the middle of voting right now. How did you vote on the measure? I will vote for the measure, and um, I just finished speaking on the floor in support of the measure. Uh, you were one of many Democrats who expressed concern that Congressman Omar was being unfairly singled out. What did you mean? Well, I think that there's a, a concern that she is facing numerous death threats. Um, it's been incredible attacks on her. Many of us actually feel that she needs to have a security detail. Um, but in the Congressional Black Caucus, people were 
always, always against anti-Semitism. That is never the question with anybody in the Congressional Black Caucus. And in a time where we're trying to focus on many proactive pieces of legislation, Mm -hmm. we do not want to see our agenda uh, diverted away from comments that people might make or accusations or threats. And so this was an opportunity to do a resolution that talked about white supremacy, that talked about anti-Semitism. And let me jump in because it talks about so many things that some people, you know, could argue that it waters down the original concerns by lawmakers who were offended by her words. If you look at the entire resolution, the majority of the resolution focuses on anti-Semitism. And I will tell you that the number one co-sponsor of the resolution is Jamie Raskin, the other co-sponsor, who is Jewish. The other co-sponsor is Cedric Richmond, who's the former chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. So the opportunity that the resolution presented was an opportunity for there to be unity in our caucus. And I believe that's what was achieved. And I think when the vote is said and done, you will see that united, actually, not just the Democrats, but the Republicans as well. This debate uh, over uh, Representative Omar's comments has exposed a split in the party about what kind of criticism is politically acceptable about the U.S. relationship with Israel. Is that a debate that the party needs to acknowledge and deal with? Well, I think that it is a a debate within the uh, caucus. And I think that Foreign policy is an important issue, and there are differences with many, many different areas of foreign policy. But I think the problem is is that the comment really didn't allow for the debate on the policy issue. The comment really reduced it to people needing to understand language that is inflammatory, language that is viewed as anti-Semitism. And again, we took the opportunity to make this a learning experience. And I think it was a learning experience for Representative Omar, and I think it was a learning experience for many members in the caucus who maybe understood that that wasn't the proper thing to say, but didn't understand the full depth, impact, and history of that kind of statement. Uh, And and I can understand this is also not the first time that Congresswoman Omar has been accused of anti-Semitism. She's already had to apologize once before about a different remark she made on Twitter. Um, Have you spoken to her today? I have spoken to her today. I've spoken to her many times. As a matter of fact, over the weekend, we were in uh, Africa together. So I've spent a long time uh, speaking with her. And I think that, again, this is an education educational process, not just for her, but for many members uh, of the caucus. And I certainly hope that this is the last time we go down this road. At this point, does it feel like this debate has overshadowed other voting priorities? No, I don't think it's overshadowed, but I think it's important that it ends today, and I think it will end with this resolution. And tomorrow we will be back voting on an important uh, piece of legislation, H.R. 1, which looks at uh, corruption, it looks at voter expansion, it looks at money in politics, and it's the significant type of policy issues that we want to address in the Democratic caucus. And we will be back on point first thing tomorrow. That's Democratic Congresswoman Karen Bass of California, chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Thank you for speaking with us. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. It doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha... Uh, and I 
listen to their friends and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. We start today in Orange County, where an anti-Semitic act has a community on edge. More than 500 people packed the Newport Harbor High School Auditorium last night to respond to a photograph featuring several local high schoolers doing a Nazi salute around a swastika formed with those red solo cups. It's upsetting and shocking, mainly because I didn't think this is something that would happen at my school. Sophomore Sarah McNeil was at the meeting and spoke with our reporter, Leslie Berstein-Rojas. The picture surfaced on social media Sunday. The kids were not at school at the time. The meeting comes on the same day as another anti-Semitic act was discovered, this one at a Los Angeles park near the Museum of the Holocaust. Police found two swastikas there drawn in blood. These two come at a time when other incidents like this have been on the rise across the country. So what's behind it and what can be done to stop them? A.C. Thompson is a staff reporter for ProPublica. He's been covering hate crimes for several years. A.C., welcome. Thank you. Uh, Anti-Semitic acts, they've been on the rise uh, for several years now. What's your research shown? You know, so what we've seen is with an overall uptick in hate crimes for several years in the United States, there's also been an uptick in anti-Semitic acts across the country and in California. So if you look um, in California in 2017, and those are the most recent numbers that we have uh, full numbers for, there was a 17.4% increase in hate crimes across the board, but anti-Jewish hate crimes went up by about 26.8%, almost 27%. What about in Orange County? So Orange County has a really pretty sophisticated tracking system, and they track not just um, crimes, but also incidents like what happened with the, the students, sort of hate incidents that don't rise to that level of being criminal. And they've had a massive increase in those. So in uh, 2015, they had 43 hate reported hate incidents. In 2017, they had uh, more than double that, 94. And what you see in Orange County is people of color are basically the number one target for hate crimes. But then when you get past that, the next largest group are religious minorities, typically Muslims and Jews who are targeted. So why are Jews then increasingly the target of these acts? You know, as somebody who's been reporting on the racist right for a long time, it's been really interesting and worrisome to, to me to see what's happening. And what I think that you're seeing is a widespread revival in anti-Semitic ideas and ideology. And so at the same time that you have rising anti-Muslim sentiment, you have rising anti-immigrant sentiment and xenophobia, you have backlash against African-American NFL players. Another thing that we're seeing is sort of a interest in conspiracy theories and bogus thoughts about Jews. Is there anything when it comes to Jewish people as far as them wanting to report these incidents as opposed to maybe another group won't? You know, I was talking uh, about this with hate crimes experts in L.A. just recently, and I think part of what you see in the Jewish community, and you see it in other communities as well, is that there is a um, real awareness of the need to report these kind of incidents and to really vigilantly track them. And I think in some communities what you get is a concern about law enforcement and a 
worry that if you're perhaps in an immigrant community, if you're perhaps uh, not fluent in English, that reporting things to the authorities may cause more trouble for you. Uh, with the Jewish community, the civil rights and sort of awareness uh, in that in that community is sort of in a different place. So what you're saying then, uh, that as a result of uh, racial tensions around the U.S., I know that uh, we had a lot of that when it comes to the immigration debate. Uh, that's breathing new life maybe into a relatively old way of thinking? Exactly, exactly. That That's the thing is... For me, I was tracking the resurgence of these white power groups in the last couple of years, 2015, 2016, 2017. And at first, all the stuff was uh, anti-immigration. It was anti-Muslim. It was uh, anti-African-American. But then more and more, what I started seeing was this interest in sort of the insane conspiracy theories that propelled the white power movement in the 20th century and sort of this notion that all uh, aspects of power in American life have been taken over by Jews and just ridiculous thinking. But that sort of thinking is definitely making a comeback. We're talking to A.C. Thompson, staff writer for ProPublica. He's been covering hate crimes for uh, several, several years. Um, okay, so to get into this next question, I want to play a clip from another student that was at that meeting last night at Newport Harbor High School. This is senior Max Drakeford. Stuff like this goes on all the time. I pee next to swastikas in the bathroom. I write essays on desks with swastikas etched in. Now, looking at these kids in Orange County, uh, AC and beyond, i got to ask, are they serious about this? Are they just rebelling? Or are they people maybe actually saying, I want to do something about this? I think you see sort of three categories of folks these days. And I think you see young people that are just rebelling against the sort of dominant liberal mores of this country, which basically say, don't be a jerk to other people, respect other people's religion, ethnicity, race, etc. And I think you see some young people, and that may be the case in Orange County, who just say, I want to be offensive, I want to break the rules, I want to be obnoxious. But I think also at the same time, what we're seeing is a sort of resurgence in casual racism. Like, I'm not a member of an organized group, but I believe in these kind of racist ideas, and I might be the person that scribbles a swastika on a desk. I'm talking not not about me, but the hypothetical sure, yeah. person. And then third, I think we're also seeing this like uh, a true revival of organized white supremacist activity. And that's the scary one, right? That's the one that uh, could lead to people getting hurt, actually has led to people getting hurt. It has. You know, what we've seen is a definite uptick in attacks like the attack on the Tree of Life synagogue. Uh, allegedly carried out by Robert Bowers in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that killed 11 Jewish worshipers. But, you know, just last week, there were people uh, on YouTube posting a video uh, with an interview of the member of the Rise Above movement, which is a white supremacist gang based in Southern California. And if you look at all the comments on YouTube below that, like 50% of them are anti-Semitic. So, AC, what's it going to take then to bring these numbers down? I mean, most people learn about the Holocaust in school. It didn't take long for me in history class to realize what a horrible thing that was. I mean, are we at the point where teaching is just not enough anymore? You know, I'm not sure. I think one thing that is um, I feel positive about is I think in the last few years we've seen more work together between uh, members of different faiths, members of different communities coming together and feeling like, At this moment, we all have to be working together to create a diverse, tolerant, 
and safe country. And I think that sort of bridge building between communities is key right now. Now, is there something then to be said about this coming to light right now? Because now that it's out there, we can talk about it and deal with it. I know some of the conversation around what happened in Orange County in uh, Newport uh, Beach area was that, okay, it's fine. It's out there. Now let's educate. So is, is there the silver lining around that? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, that is like one of the things about the social media age is that it has sort of allowed people to expose their worst instincts and their worst behaviors. And that is both frightening and disturbing. You know, there were millions of anti-Semitic tweets, many of them directed at journalists in the run-up to the 2016 election. But at the same time, it's also giving us an opportunity to have conversations like this and to really, uh, you know, basically deal with what I think has been lurking beneath the surface of American society for a very long time. A.C. Thompson is a staff reporter for ProPublica. He's been covering hate crimes for several years. A.C., thanks a lot. Thank you. Tennessee. 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 Changes coming to UT campus in the wake of the controversy over a blackface picture on social media. That picture showing what appears to be two UT students in blackface, the picture accompanied by a racist caption. We showed you last night the protests at the UT basketball game. Students dressing in black, unhappy with UT's response to the controversy, calling for the students to be expelled. Breaking news, WATE 6 on your side reporter Blake Stevens joins us from campus. Blake, you were there to cover a meeting on hate speech and the First Amendment scheduled before this controversy when these new actions were sent out. So tell us what you've learned. Yeah, guys, that's why we were here. There were well over 100 angry students and faculty members in that room there behind me, upset with how the administration handled that blackface controversy. But at the end of that, at the end of that meeting, those faculty and students were hearing uh, that email from the chancellor. Some of those changes proposed were the chancellor's uh, including bias and inclusion, tra uh, inclusion training for staff, expanding student cultural training, during orientations. Also, forming a committee to review their code of conduct, as well as um, while the email didn't provide details about the students, it did say one student involved in that blackface photo is no longer a student here at UT. And that was the whole point of that meeting, guys. Uh, it was to talk about what the administration could and what the administration should do to make students feel more safe and more included on campus. Students like Uriah Ritchie are excited about these changes. We still have a lot of work to do. During the meeting, however, we got an email from the chancellor, and it was, it was a step in the right direction, which I really appreciate. I do. It was a step in the right direction, and he promised, you know, more training on inclusivity and diversity and implicit biases for our, for our faculty and staff, as well as our students, and I think that's what's definitely needed. So this is what we have been pushing for, you know, and I appreciate the step in the right direction, but it's, we have a long way to go, most definitely.
Hey guys, we told you at four that the current code of conduct doesn't have words like race, racism, discrimination. None of those words are listed in the current code of Code of Conduct. So we will be following these changes as they are implemented here on campus. Reporting live from campus, Blake Stevens, WATE 6 on your side. All right, thank you, Blake. Now, we mentioned today's session was planned before this latest controversy. And this issue of hate speech and the First Amendment came up last year. You may remember the messages and symbols uh, from a white nationalist group painted on the rock, and later a white nationalist leader who managed to organize a speaking event on campus despite objections from campus. Administrators deciding they could not stop the group from coming to campus, but the university could get together and make a statement that UT stands against hate by organizing a unity event, which was held just a few weeks ago for the second time. College don't mean shit. Y'all niggas, and you gonna be niggas forever, just like us, niggas. Class project reportedly takes a racist turn in Sherwood, and new tonight, the Pulaski County Special District, Special School District, has launched an investigation. Fox 16's Tyler Thompson joining us after speaking with the district spokesperson. So, what they have to say? Yeah, guys, the district spokesperson released a statement within hours of a Facebook post going viral, claiming to be a picture of a class project at Sylvan Hills centered around a racial slur. Nigga! It's the end of the day outside the Sylvan Hills freshman campus in Sherwood. And traffic is on the move. So is the traffic online. After a woman's Facebook post purportedly reveals a questionable class project from the freshman campus. I think it's offensive. It's titled N-Word Pass, decorated with images of Martin Luther King Jr. and Barack Obama. Damn you, Obama. I, I don't like it. Deandra Vines has a brother that goes to the school here. Seeing the post for the first time Tuesday sparks disappointment. No matter what race you are... I don't think the N-word should just be going around. When asked about the post and the project, a district spokesperson referred us to a statement, which reads in part, a project at the North Campus was not handled according to PCSSD policies, beliefs, and code of conduct. We continue to investigate. I wouldn't expect that from Sylvan Hills, no. It's what some might describe as a failed assignment with more homework to do. It's unclear how many students were involved in this project or how it was handled in the classroom. We're going to continue to follow up with the district's investigation. Okay. I could see why it would catch a lot of people's attention. But the project itself, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are scratching their heads wondering what the project was about in the first place. Right, 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 right. Cops and Klansmen. Colleagues? Cops survey a scene of conflict, a struggle between fascists and anti-fascists. Blood is on the ground, and webcam recordings show images of members of the Ku Klux Klan and related groups, not only armed with knives, but actually showing some men stabbing downward at writhing bodies on the ground. One side has knives. One side has signs. Guess which side received charges of violating the law? Guess which side had been surveyed by priests? Two, one, mark. Guess which side had been surveilled by state and federal agents long before the events of the day? I'll give you a hint. It wasn't the Ku Klux Klan. According to reports published in The Guardian of London,
police accounts concentrated on two major groups, anti-fascists and members of Black Lives Matter. In June 2016, anti-fascists assembled at a neo-Nazi rally in Sacramento, California. As expected, this rally was a site of high emotions. Violence erupted between the two sides, with at least eight anti-fascists either stabbed, beaten, or both. How did it happen that none of the neo-Nazis were charged with anything, while anti-fascists were charged with everything? The answer is Donovan Ayers, a California highway patrolman who was ordered to investigate the melee. He wrote hundreds of pages of notes advocating charges against the anti-fascists. As for the neo-Nazis, nothing. They have every right to protest, but what of those who oppose them? They, it seems, are simply troublemakers. Ayers did extensive online research on the anti-fascists, including email, Facebook, and even metadata. His research included Native American and Chicano groups who were anti-fascists. At the end of a hearing where Ayers testified, the DA was thanked by one courtroom observer for protecting white supremacists. One wonders, how does such a thing as this happen? And history provides a telling answer. For police and fascists have ever been brothers beneath their uniforms. During the 1930s, when the economy was in freefall, groups like the Industrial Workers of the World, known as the IWW or Wobblies, tried to organize agricultural workers, especially in California's fertile Central Valley, to protect the profits of the landowners, police, and Klansmen joined hands to attack Wobblies by beating, shooting, and arresting them as Klansmen attacked and assaulted their children. During this same period, as Communists tried to organize black agricultural workers in Alabama, cops and Klansmen joined hands to repress and terrorize them again on behalf of wealthy landowners. One need only read No One is Illegal by Justin Akers Chacon and Mike Davis or Robin D.G. Kelly's multi-award winning book of history known as Hammer and Ho. Today, once again, fascists have friends among American police in California, in Oregon, and beyond. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Context of white supremacy. The next report is on Stefan Clark, black male shot and killed in California by California's finest. Uh, happened uh, in 2018. I would normally have just used Dr. Tommy Curry's segue, the man not race class genre and the dilemmas of black manhood but with the stefan clark case specifically what i remember about this case is not that another black male a victim 
of police terrorism and shot down and why don't we have body cams? What I remember is this no good black male hated black females. That's what I remember. This was another case of we will stand on the corpse of a dead black male to make a point about something else completely. Uh, and I'll just look at the articles. Uh, April 4, 2018, don't tell black women how to feel about Stefan Clark's tweets. Uh, Stefan Clark's tweets are reminders, say her name, Stefan Clark, and the hatred of black women. Uh, let's see. Judge of characters, the hatred of black women. Uh, and this is all about Stefan Clark. Uh, that's just page one. Uh, next page. Black women and Willie D say don't defend Stefan Clark. Uh, woman fired for saying Stefan Clark deserved to be killed. I'll step up. This is what I remember about Stefan Clark. Not another black male killed by enforcement officials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Black males die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I remember is, yes, this one. We're not even going to protest because he hated black females. Over the weekend, the Sacramento District Attorney announced that the two police officers who shot and killed 22-year-old Stephon Clark, an unarmed black man last year, would not face criminal charges. During the press conference, DA Anne-Marie Schubert also took the rare step of releasing details about Clark, including personal text messages and his internet search history. And that has generated intense criticism from Clark's family and community leaders. The DA has shown us time and time again throughout her terms who she is and what she stands for, which is not fairness or justice. Um, she has never charged an officer for a homicide. My son is just the one that will break the mold because we're not going to accept that. That's Saket Clark, Stefan Clark's mother, speaking after the district attorney's press conference. And Nick Miller has been following it all. He's the senior editor of news at Capital Public Radio in Sacramento. Nick, welcome to The Takeaway. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about the community response to the news. What has that response been so far? It's been a mix of emotions uh, right out the gate in the immediate aftermath of the DA's announcement on Saturday. Um, activists with the local Black Lives Matter and other social justice groups, they decided they wanted to do a very targeted demonstrations and they converged on a police station in the south side of town. Um, our reporters tell me that people were grieving. Uh, it was a very somber mood. There was some chanting. Some individuals wearing black masks burned uh, uh, the Blue Lives Matter police flags in the parking lot of the station. But it was a peaceful protest. Law enforcement says there were no arrests. People were not surprised by the DA's announcement. However, they they found that the way she went about it uh, surprising. Obviously, we're talking about Anne-Marie Schubert, who's the Sacramento District Attorney. What is her, I guess, style? What do we know about her before this case? Well, this is her second term as district attorney. Uh, she's a, a considered a more conservative prosecutor. Uh, she's reviewed th 33, now 34 uh, police shooting cases by county or city uh, law enforcement officers since 2015. And she's um, not once prosecuted or filed criminal charges against an officer who's uh, fired their uh, used deadly force. 
um, while on duty, and she's been criticized for that. Uh, to her defense, before 2015, the district attorney's office did not even review these cases. They were done by the department themselves, either the sheriff's or, or the city police department. So she at least brought back these reviews, but you know she's been dinged. You know, people have said there's been some meaningful cases where you know, you know, deadly force was used by officers on duty, and um, they question whether criminal charges should have been brought. So essentially, uh, Schubert's decision here was not a surprise, but there were, I mean, given the sensitivities of this case, um, yet again, a an unarmed black man shot and killed by police officers. Uh, this is something that this country is grappling with. So, what was so, what was it about the way that she approached this particular? announcement on Saturday that ruffled so many people. So this is really interesting because uh, local clergy, uh, activists with uh, uh, social justice groups are, are, are accusing the DA of character assassination. And they're doing that because during this sort of extraordinary hour-long announcement by the DA on, on Saturday, she d- disclosed and publicized information that was unlocked on Stefan Clark's cell phone, which was found at the scene. And the information on the cell phone was private text messages between Clark and the mother of his children where they're discussing an incident that occurred two days before Clark died on March 16th. There was a domestic violence incident, and Clark, according to the DA, was facing arrest. And he's discussing this incident with the mother of his children, whose name is Selena Mani, and he's threatening suicide. He's sending pictures to her of a, a handful of Xanax pills saying that he's going to take them all if they don't try to get the family back together. And the at the moment, watching this announcement by the DA, the implication of that or the suggestion was that, oh, is she suggesting that he may be committing suicide by cop, which means putting oneself you know, in a situation where a law enforcement officer will kill you, you know, take your own life. And and that that suggestion and then also the disclosure of these very private personal messages and just, you know, what Stefan Clark was doing on his phone in his private life in those 48 hours leading up to his death has really frustrated and angered the community. And also, I wonder if there's a certain uh, breach of privacy here. The person, uh, Stefan Clark, is not with us to be able to speak for himself or to defend himself. So I'm wondering if that also raised some eyebrows. I think that's a really good point. Um, the, 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 the DA, you know, she says she wasn't suggesting that he was going to be wanted to commit suicide by cop. But she said, you know, this is information that were these officers to be prosecuted and go to trial, the jury would hear this information. Therefore, it's important that the public know this information. Mm-hmm. Um, what's been the local response to this decision, the DA's decision? Are local and state politicians backing her or do we expect uh, a more a stronger legal response at this point? So the response is really zeroing in on this idea of what is deadly force and what should the law allow an officer when it comes to excess when it comes to force to defend oneself, you know? And it really is sort of this tipping point moment here in California. We have the governor himself, Governor Gavin Newsom. Um, he said this must be a time for change. He said, you know, clearly there's a problem because black and brown men and women are treated differently. 
by law enforcement officers and therefore by the law than 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 their white residents here in California. So there's this conversation that's has been simmering for a couple years now at the state capitol, and it's now coming to a head. And we're going to see actual change occurring or a conversation about change occurring on how our laws that govern use of force need to be updated or need to be uh, need to evolve. Nick Miller is the senior editor of news at Capital Public Radio. Nick, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Mama says police shoot black people. Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that true? In West Palm Beach, Florida today, a jury convicted a former police officer in the fatal shooting of a black man back in 2015. This is the first time in 30 years that an on-duty officer in Florida has been convicted in a shooting. NPR's Greg Allen has details, and a warning to our listeners, his story contains sounds of gunshots that some may find disturbing. Corey Jones was a housing inspector and part-time musician who was on his way home from a nightclub in October 2015 when his van broke down on I-95 in Palm Beach Gardens. He was on the side of the road in his SUV when he called for roadside assistance. What can I do for you tonight? I need to get a tow. Jones was on the phone with dispatcher Maddie Tolliver. That's when Palm Beach Gardens officer Newman Raja, dressed in plain clothes, wheeled his unmarked van the wrong way down an exit ramp, stopping just feet from Jones's van. On a recording of that phone call, introduced as evidence at the trial, Raja is never heard identifying himself as a police officer. In the recording, the door to Jones's SUV is heard being opened, and he tells Raja, I'm good. Using an expletive, Raja tells him to get his hands up and begins shooting two seconds later. Oh, my gosh. Prosecutors say Jones left his vehicle and began running. On the recording, 10 seconds go by, and Raja is heard firing three more shots at Jones, killing him. Jones had a permit to carry a concealed weapon. After he was killed, investigators found it more than 100 feet from his body. It hadn't been fired. The city of Palm Beach Gardens fired Raja from his job as police officer. At the trial, prosecutors said Raja's aggressive behavior and the fact that he didn't identify himself as a police officer led Jones to believe he was going to be robbed or carjacked. The defense maintained that Raja had identified himself as an officer and that when he approached the SUV, he saw Jones holding a gun and acted in self-defense. After five hours of deliberations, the jury convicted Raja on two counts, manslaughter and attempted murder. Outside the courtroom, Corey Jones's father, Clinton Jones, spoke to reporters. It was a long process, but we endured. And today, we have justice. Corey Jones's death in 2015 was one in a series of confrontations that resulted in the deaths of black men at the hands of police officers. It came a year after Michael Brown's shooting in Ferguson, Missouri, and Eric Garner's death in New York. Following Corey Jones's death, there were marches and protests in Palm Beach County. Outside the courthouse today, State Attorney David Ehrenberg thanked Jones's family and the community for its patience while prosecutors pursued the case. Hopefully today can provide a measure of justice and closure to the Banks and Jones families and to our entire community. There's been an open wound in our community, and hopefully that can begin to heal. Ehrenberg called Raja's actions an aberration that shouldn't tarnish the contributions of officers who, in his words, work day and night to keep our community safe. Raja will be sentenced next month. He faces a mandatory minimum sentence of 25 years in prison with the possibility of life. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami.
Actor Jesse Smollett has been indicted on 16 felony counts, and this is by a grand jury. The Cook County Grand Jury has returned a 16 count felony indictment against Jesse Smollett for filing a false police report. So the grand jury reportedly handed up to two sets of charges, one for Smollett's initial report to Chicago PD. And the other charges are for his second interview with the cops. So uh, filing a false police report. And for those of you who might have missed the original story here, uh, he had staged uh, an attack where uh, two individuals had allegedly beaten him while yelling racial and homophobic slurs. Uh, There were some allegations that they were Trump supporters. And once authorities started investigating this, they found that Jesse Smollett had actually paid two brothers and signed the check in order to carry out this attack. Well, now that we largely know that it's false, we have to keep saying we allegedly because he hasn't been convicted. But some of the details are, in hindsight, now that we know them, are comical. So you've got the Osendario brothers, where he's like, Well, I can't believe these guys attacked me. And called me racist words. They're Nigerian, okay? Yeah. And he's like, "Oh my God, I got attacked by MAGA guys uh, yelling it's MAGA country." One's his personal trainer, the other one's an extra empire. Disaster. Uh, this was not well planned. And also, uh, while authorities investigated this, of course, they're they're piecing things together and they're gathering evidence. And part of the evidence that they've gathered is uh, surveillance footage, which features the, the two brothers buying the materials necessary to carry out this fake attack. So there they are. Those are the two brothers. There they are buying the masks and things like that to, to carry out the, the staged attack. But there Oops. is something that's, that's really important to me here, actually. I think this is going to be used as a cudgel. By the right, of course, to say that all hate attacks are fake, that all alleged hate attacks are fake. I would really watch for it to be an anecdote that that becomes this meme, that becomes all these other things. I do want to remind people: two weeks ago, the Southern Poverty Law Center released their statistics for the year. There are more hate groups in America than there have been for 20 years. So we have more hate in the United States right now than we've been dealing with, or at least a broader swath of hate, different different varieties. And that's really troublesome. So we can't take this and go, you know, and, and draw any big conclusions from it. Of it's course. an anecdote about someone who obviously um, is going through some stuff. Um, but but there is, you know, we still have these deeply, deeply systemic uh, levels of racism in the country. Yeah, I mean, the same people who will use this as uh, an excuse to argue that, hey, we don't really have an issue with race in America, will right. also simultaneously ignore what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia. Sure. I mean, that happened, and a person was murdered there. Someone was killed there. Um, but one thing that I do want to also bring up is, you're absolutely right. One of the memes related to the story that's gone viral features a picture of Smollett, picture of the two brothers, and it says, when things are so good in the US, you need to hire two Nigerian brothers to carry out a racist attack, something like that. Yeah, so here they go again. So I tweeted earlier today about how the right wing commits far more violence and hatred than the left wing does. And of course, the right wing got triggered by it. Uh, including one guy who hinted at violence, of course, to be expected. Um, Surprised it was only a hint. Um, so, and they're like, "Oh, really? You know, here goes the left again." And where's your evidence? Well, um, 
the right wing was uh, quoting uh, Anti-Defamation League for uh, a week straight because they were upset about Ilhan Omar's comments. Uh, so I'll quote uh, ADL right back at you. They released a report saying that uh, all the people killed through uh, extremist attacks in the last year were uh, killed by right-wing extremists, every single one, okay, including, of course, uh, the 11 people killed in a synagogue uh, in Pittsburgh. So uh, it's real. The right-wing violence is real. It is disproportionately right-wing. That's a fact. You can get triggered by that fact, but it's a reality. And you can look it up. You can go look at the Anti-Defamation League uh, website on it. Go research any articles you like on it. Okay, so, but back to Smollett. It, that, that does not mean that Smollett's off the hook. Of course not. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's an idiot, uh, and, and he's done great damage here for exactly the reasons that we're talking about here. He's minimized the actual racial attacks that happened in this country. He's done it in such an over-the-top comical way. Oh, they did the noose, they did the bleach, and they did the, right. the and they yelled MAGA country, and they were racist and homophobic, and blah, blah, blah. And so now uh, the right wing will uh, is overjoyed and ready to dismiss every case of racism. But even if it wasn't for any of that and you take the politics out of it, he's still a terrible guy because you should never do that. You shouldn't lie to the cops. You shouldn't, you know... Uh, try to get fame for yourself by using racism and homophobia as a trick. Jesus Christ, how bad a guy are you, right? Yeah. And and to and 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 the last part of it is, don't blame people. So we get super upset when uh, white people, right wingers, whatever you want to say, say, "Oh, I got assaulted or raped or whatever," and it was a black guy. That's a terrible thing to do when, when they when, make it up. Yeah, when they make it up. Um, and in, but it's also true when a black guy makes up that it was white people or right wingers that attacked him. That is also reprehensible. So it's what Smollett did allegedly is just terrible in every imaginable. I way. have to add one other really look. There is one, not one. There's several funny pieces of evidence that the authorities have you know found, and one of them is the fact that. They rehearsed the staged attack. Right. right. Like, oh God! They they're rehearsed so it. silly because so, they're, they're actors. They're thespians. I mean, okay, and this is again. I have zero sympathy for him. He's done something terrible. I will throw one thing in the mix. Right. Mm-hmm. I came into this industry as a travel writer. Travel is my true pra- passion. Mm-hmm. A couple years ago, Ryan Lochte was in Brazil for the Olympics. Yes. He faked a crime. He was on Dancing with the Stars six weeks later. So oh, just keep yeah. in mind. Just keep in mind that there might be like continued implications of this and how much fallout. Now, do I think that Jesse Smollett deserves to get cast on something next week? Absolutely not. But I'm just saying there are a lot of implications here, especially when you look back at that Lochte case, which is somewhat of a solid amalgam yeah. for Jesse Smollett in the sense that, I, I mean, I feel like he was increasing xenophobia in our nation, certainly by saying he went to the Olympics and got attacked. Definitely. Steve, I had not thought of that, man. That That's is a, really a good great point. point. And I was, look, so Smollett's up on 16 counts here, and he can get anywhere from probation to four years in, in jail. That's a serious, and and earlier I talked about I think he should get jail time. But when you do that juxtaposition, well, then Lochte should have gotten jail time too. Absolutely. And so let's be fair in in all regards. Uh, And and finally, uh, the one thing this definitively proves is that actors should not write their own scripts. You know, first ladies usually have a cause. And you've already said you're interested in speaking out against bullying on social media. I think it's very important because a lot of uh, children and teenagers are getting hurt. 
and we need to teach them how to talk to each other, how to treat each other, and uh, to, to be able to connect with each other on the right way. It's an ironic choice, since her own husband sent out a stream of pretty nasty tweets during the campaign. I'd like to go back now to a moment in Michael Cohen's testimony before the House Oversight Committee last week. Cohen said bluntly the president is racist. To rebut the charge, North Carolina Republican Congressman Mark Meadows brought in Lynn Patton, an African-American woman who worked for the Trump Organization. And Meadows had her stand silently behind him while he quoted her as saying she wouldn't work for a racist. Two African-American lawmakers objected, calling the move insulting. But the last to speak, Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, was even more blunt. The fact that someone would actually use a prop, a black woman, in this chamber, in this committee, is alone racist in itself. That is the exchange that went viral, with Meadows vehemently objecting and Tlaib first pressing her point but later apologizing. After all that, Mr. Meadows approached her on the House floor and the two embraced and agreed to put it behind them. But the whole exchange has sparked a lot of commentary in some quarters, and it invites the question, does having a person of a different ethnic group as an employee or friend mean you can't be racist? And exactly what does it mean to say you have a friend of a different race? Deborah Plummer has thought a lot about this. She is a psychologist and she's written a book called Some of My Friends Are, The Daunting Challenges and Untapped Benefits of Cross-Racial Friendships. And she's with us now. Deborah Palmer, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, Congressman Meadows took great offense at the congresswoman's suggestion that he was racist for bringing in Ms. Patton. I'll just play what he had to say. My nieces and nephews are people of color. Not many people know that. And to indicate that I asked someone who is a personal friend of the Trump family, who has worked for him, who knows this particular individual, that she's coming in to be a prop, it's racist to suggest that I ask her to come in here for that reason. So you see, number one, he's calling Rashida Tlaib a racist. And secondly, I also want to highlight his emotion because he seems very upset at even the suggestion. How common is his reaction and how common is his view of the situation? We still have, and maybe this is a good thing, a collective horror to be called racist. You know, people do shy away from that claim and do not want to be associated with racism. However, we don't have a shared understanding of what racism is. And we also have a 1960s understanding so that it's only the overt and intentional kinds of racism rather than the modern forms of racism that are more prevalent today. Why do you think it is, though, that so many people have responded so strongly to this exchange? I mean, I've seen, you know, many people writing commentaries about this who don't normally weigh in on these kinds of, of issues to say, absolutely, you can be racist if you have somebody, a, a person of color of a different race working for you or even claims to be your friend. So first of all, do you think that that's true? And secondly, why do you think it's pushing so many people's buttons? Why does it evoke this strong reaction on the other side? The answer to the first question about can you be racist and still have friends who cross racial lines? Yes. When you look at surveys, most whites will say they have a friend of a, of a different race, and they use that as a badge of honor. However, we know that when someone calls you a friend, it may not be that you understand the same kind of friendship that you have. I had one focus group participant say to me, you know, I know that I'm about 12 people's good black friend, and I probably just sat next to them in high school one time. I'm intrigued by what you said. You're saying that a majority of, of white people will say they have a friend of a different race, but you're saying 
that's not exactly true. How do you understand that disconnect? Is it that African-Americans and white people and Latinos, for example, mean something different? And in our studies, when we look at friendship, we let people define, claim who they have as friends, but then we do things that look at, um, measure their depth of friendship and the level of contact. But then we have people who are have fantasy friends, which are really, they have little or no contact, no depth or intimacy. They may just know each other as, you know, that's the Pomeranian's dog's mom. And then we have people who we work with who are part of our group of friends that we may have shared experience with, but they're not necessarily the have the depth or the friendship. We have friends, though, and when those cross racial lines and we do have some depth or intimacy, those are the kinds of friends that people are talking about that really could have the bench strength to talk about racially charged situations, even have a conversation about the Cohen hearings and what happened. That was Deborah Plummer, Vice Chancellor of Diversity and Inclusion at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. She is the author of Some of My Friends Are, The Daunting Challenges and Untapped Benefits of Cross-Racial Friendships. Deborah Plummer, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you, Michelle. Context of White Supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, March 9, 2019, so I have been told. One of the most frightening, most dangerous combinations in the known universe. White friend. That is the sort of malarkey that would pass for intelligent, well-thought-out, Commentary on white supremacy racism in 2019. Benefits of quote unquote cross racial friendships, suggesting that there is more than one race. Anywho, this is the compensatory call in where we attempt to speak accurately using counter racist logic about the problem white supremacy. Racism. The number to dial 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code Five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. A few things before we get to folks who dialed in. Uh, I think there was some disruption. The line was not as clear for folks listening in. I was trying to get that taken care of as we move forward. Uh, but I know it's a little clearer if you dial in. So if you're listening live, you can dial in 641-715-3640. The code again, 564-943-POUND. Star 61, if you would like to participate. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. 
racism-notes.blogspot.com. Listener-supported counter-racist radio. Uh, when you hit the blog, PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, drop me an email and we can get you a physical mailing address. Uh, enormous gratitude to all of the investors who have supported for a decade, uh, keeping the cows on the air. I hope we have provided accurate, constructive information on what white supremacy racism is, how it works, what we can do to solve this problem immediately. <clears throat> if you are not into PayPal, drop us an email. We can get you a physical mailing address and or you can support via the wish list at Amazon.com. It is linked under Gus T. Renegade. Uh, it is linked at my blog. <clears throat> You'll see it right beneath the PayPal button, uh, or you can just go to Amazon.com and Gus T. Renegade. You'll see my wish list. Again, huge thanks to all the folks who have nabbed items from my wish list uh, over the years. Again, I hope the program has been, continues to be worthy of your life currency. We have too many problems to waste time. Moving forward, number one, uh, we have a lot of listeners over the years, folks in uh, the state of Alabama, uh, Big Victim and other folks uh, down in that region who have called in, supported over the years. I hope folks uh, are safe uh, and did not lose life or major property that they're <clears throat> Residence uh, is intact for folks in Alabama. I know they had major uh, storm events uh, this week. If you're able to <clears throat> call in at some point just to let us know that you are alive and doing as well as can be expected under these conditions, that would be appreciated. We also had uh, a request. Uh, Stacy in the UK, she has uh, been dedicated uh, for years participating in neutralizing workplace racism. Um, <clears throat> I think, oh, was it Stacy? I think it was, well, one of our listeners requested assistance with interviews, workplace interviews. If you particularly have any uh, expertise with human resources and doing interviews for jobs, strength-based interviews, you can drop me an email until justice at gmail.com and I can forward along your information uh, to folks who dialed in for workplace racism who are requesting help with interviews. So let me know if you have any assistance or would be willing to help out with that. Next. <clears throat> so I can't believe it. It seems like just yesterday we were talking about Doing the possibility of the Virginia retreat that is all done, finished, nothing but the memories of mud and wackiness in VA. So glad I didn't die there. <clears throat> Moving forward, we are looking at California for a possible second retreat, July 3rd through July 7 in Southern California, Lake Arrowhead, California, specifically, again, July 3rd through July 7. <clears throat> this time around, four full bathrooms, 13 beds will eliminate, I think, some of the major problems. There should not be mud. There's an actual garage at the facility. It is owned by a non-white person. Uh, we have access to a private lake <clears throat> and... Nadira, who did all of the uh, cooking, Nadira Khalifa, 
Uh, she was the chef for the weekend in Virginia and did phenomenal vegan meals. I think unanimously, uh, the folks who were there were very pleased with all of the vittles, plant-based vittles that we had while we were in Virginia. She has agreed to come out uh, for July 3 through July 7 at Lake Arrowhead, California to do all of the meals, plant-based meals again. We'll have morning and evening yoga. We'll have counter-racist workshops in between, time to frolic at the lake. Uh, there's enough space we can do yoga outside. I'm super excited. I think this will be, or it's not, I think I've already looked at the schedule. If we're able to do this retreat, uh, we have one more to see if we can do three retreats for the year. The final would be in Florida uh, for December 27th through January 1. <clears throat> but moving forward, all of the retreats would be planned well in advance uh, so that if people need to make travel arrangements or get time off from work, all of that will be easy to do. Coordinating flights or anything else, super easy to do. We'll have way advanced notice. I think this is this will be the last time that we have any sort of short notice retreat unless like an emergency comes up or something where we just have to do uh, a retreat, you know, in the next two months or something bad is going to happen. Uh, but it looks like all the rest will be planned well in advance. So people will have lots and lots of time to organize. Uh, I think <clears throat> it would have been best if we had been planning for this retreat uh, and announcing for it in December. But we shall see if we have enough time to get this done I am super excited because I think we had a constructive time in Virginia and we did not have great weather. I didn't have any experience doing retreats. Uh, we didn't have 13 beds. We had air mattresses. I mean, we did not have, uh, you know, the, the most ideal setting for a yoga retreat. And we were still able to, I think, have a constructive time, no name calling. We enjoyed some good food and such. So if we can be in an environment that is more comfortable sleeping and we can still have great food, do the yoga, get some California sunshine. Wow. Not to mention, I think what I said in the email that I sent out, you can take all of the so-called July 4th holidays that you have experienced thus far. Guaranteed, this the Cows 10-Year Anniversary 2019 Southern California Yoga Retreat will definitely not be like any of those other so-called July 4ths. Should be a drastic improvement. You can drop an email until justice at gmail.com. <clears throat> If you need more details, we have pictures of the facility. The cost for July 3rd through July 7 is $950. It would be $600 due by March 24 and the remainder by June 7th. I think we said it was, I think it was June 7th uh, for the total balance uh, to break it up so that folks are not having to pay the full balance at once. That includes all meals, lodging, yoga classes, Counter-racist workshops obviously does not include your transportation to get to Lake Arrowhead, California. Uh, we should have, I believe, 13 spots. I think it was 13. I could be off by one on that. It might be 14, but I think it was 13 spots. So if we have at least 10 people, we will be doing retreat number two 
in Southern California. Wow, I am super excited. As someone who used to live in California, I do all the time say, boast that Seattle is the best plantation in this part of the world. Having lived in California, I am a big fan of California. It would be nice to be back to visit for the summertime. Until justice at gmail.com. If you have questions, would like to see pictures of the facility, or you have any other questions about participating, hoping that we are able to have retreat number two and then retreat number three in Florida. But that's, you know, to be discussed later. Next. <clears throat> uh, the segment. Oh, wait a minute. Speaking of yoga. I could take up a whole lot of time, but I will just try to share maybe two or three of the incidents that happened uh, in yoga. Incident number one, I've been wearing my cow's yoga retreat T-shirt. Oh, I guess I should say we do have a small number. And I do mean a small number of the cow's yoga retreat T-shirts left. I did not get a lot of extras because I am not in the T-shirt business. Uh, I was chastised for reusing a box to send out shirts. I thought, you know, you're supposed to reduce and reuse. Isn't that what they say? But yes, we do have a limited number of T-shirts. I think we are all out of mediums. I think we are all out of larges. I think we have maybe one small left and we have extra large and double extra large. I think those are the sizes that we have left and we do not have a whole lot of any of them. So if you are interested in a cow's yoga retreat, Virginia yoga retreat t-shirt, there obviously will be different shirts if we have a retreat in California. Drop me an email and we can get you a shirt. That said, so I have been wearing my Virginia yoga retreat t-shirt to class because how often do you get to wear a t-shirt with a Klansman on it? So I had been wearing that one, but then I switched back, old reliable, please treat me like a white person. I wear that shirt. I go to my yoga class today, this afternoon before class. Incidentally, I went to class this morning, myofascial release. The people that went to the Virginia yoga retreat know what that is. They got their yoga tune-up balls. We did a session of that in VA. Uh, So I went to my myofascial release class this morning, and there were two black females, two non-white females. I think there are about five non-white people in the class. I don't think I've ever seen uh, that much melanin in a yoga class, especially a myofascial release class. But that did happen this morning. Anyway, so I'm at the second class. I have my shirt on. White woman, suspected race soldier that I've never seen before. At least I don't recognize her. She's standing next to me waiting to check in in the front of the class. And she looks and she says, uh, oh, I like your shirt. And I look at her. I say, oh, thank you. And she says, yes, I've seen it here before. And so I look at her because that's a curious thing to say. She didn't say, I've seen you here before. She says, I've seen it here before. So I ask, did you see someone else wearing this shirt here? I'm curious. Maybe they got some some cows listeners who come to the studio to practice yoga. And she said, oh, no, no, I think it was you. I think it was you. Do you do you come here uh, more, you know, frequently? And I said, yeah, I, I stopped through once or twice. And she says, oh, OK, yeah, I think it it must have been you. But, yeah, I, I really I really like that shirt. Hmm. And she went to go sit down. And I thought even then the tackiness. Because it couldn't just be, I've seen you here before, acknowledging that I am talking to a human being. Is I've seen that shirt here before that happens to be on that Negro. 
Again, this is why I always take the same spot in the corner away from everyone so I don't have to be near suspected race soldiers. Yoga story number two. I'm in class on Wednesday. We get to the end of class. White male, suspected racist instructor. He's about to help open a yoga studio. That's a frequent thing here in Seattle. I told you they have yoga studios aplenty. So he announces that he's going to next week will be his last week teaching. I've taken this white male teaches a lot of classes. He teaches a lot of the uh, advanced classes. And I've taken a lot of classes with him, like maybe 100 yoga classes with him over the last year. So I go to him. I say, hey, we've taken a lot of classes together. Uh, You've seen me practice so you can comment because you've seen my form a lot. Uh, Do you have any tips? This is something that they tell you to do in teacher training, particularly with instructors that you practice with a lot. So I go to ask and he says, um, oh, wow, you've made so much progress. You're so much more flexible than when you started last year and blah, blah, blah. And he says, you know, I'm still doing a Sunday morning class, which I generally take tomorrow morning. In fact, 8 a.m. He says, uh, I tell you what. And then he stopped and he says, you know. I normally don't give a whole lot of adjustments, which is true. And he said, uh, you know, I'm a male. I don't like doing a whole lot of touching nowadays, especially I don't like doing a whole lot of touching. You look at somebody. I mean, you don't even have to touch him. You just look at him and woof. And he looks at me and he says, my gosh, and you, I mean, you're black. So, I mean, (laughs) now (laughs) I have said for your or actually pause. I thought white people were supposed to be ignorant about racism. How would he have this conclusion about it being, you know, intense or different or difficult for me as a black male? Anyway, I've said for a long time. I think about Bill Cosby a lot. I was going to wear a Bill Cosby hat at the Virginia yoga retreat. I didn't. He said this. I almost said Bill Cosby. I caught myself. I almost said it. And I just, hmm. And he says, yes, so you're black. So I mean, anyway, I don't do a whole lot of touching. But since we have taken these classes and you want to make sure your form is good, you're an instructor, I will, you know, give an adjustment or let you know. But generally, yeah, you're made so much progress my goodness that was incident number two i had a bunch of them it was so many things that uh happened this i guess i can pause and even uh come back to rejoin with the yoga stories because there were so many of them uh over this week uh i guess the last thing that i'll get the segment the young turks where they were talking about justin smollett the black male uh i reckon i'll say the same thing that I said with, was it Liam Neeson, the white male who said he was so angry when his white girl friend, I purposely put the pause there because I didn't mean it was like a quote unquote romantic thing, but he just said it was his friend who happened to be a female, said she was raped by a black male ostensibly. He was so angry that he went outside and he was hoping, wishing, praying, looking for a nigger or eight to kill. Retribution, you know. It reminded me because I said not only did I think he was practicing white supremacy racism and he actually could have killed five or eight niggers. How would we know? I said I also think that could have been a publicity stunt for his movie because he had a movie coming out at the time. I think also this could have been some sort of uh, publicity stunt even 
in the accusations and the charges, all of that. This all could have been staged that, yes, we even wanted the drama of, you know, maybe they'll have a trial with all of this and he'll have to testify. And, you know, they can make a maybe it won't be a, a monster series like they did with the people versus O.J. Simpson. But, you know, they'll make a big, you know, to do uh, about all of this. All of that said, the way that the Young Turks discussed that segment, even there, we talked about them consistently. Right wingers. I'm about to say what I say consistently about metaphors. Not saying suspected racists, not even just saying whites, but right wingers are going to use this to say that there's not racism. White people, suspected racists, will use this incident to say that every time a nigger says something about racism, they're lying. They're making it up. That's the correct way. And they do this sort of thing on a regular basis where it's isolating. Uh, racial focal pointing, I think, was the term where it's it's just a small number of whites who are racist. It's not all white people, and we don't even want the focus to be on the fact that it's individuals classified as white. We want it to just be right-wingers, conservatives, old white people, white people in the South, whatever, you know, as small as we can make it so that you're not accurately understanding that the problem is white people. Young Turks, very consistent with that brand of sophisticated confusion, in my view, practicing racism. Uh, speaking of metaphors, uh, if we could not use metaphors on this broadcast, I would super appreciate it. Uh, I've concluded, like the folks at the Young Turks, frequently racists, they will use metaphors uh, to practice deception. Uh, they will often, they will insist uh, that two separate entities are identical exactly alike when frequently that is not the case at all uh victims myself included we've been exposed to this behavior for a long time and we are still learning there are many instances where we will substitute an analogy or a comparison of some sort uh as opposed to logic because we're still learning so we might not have logic to articulate our thoughts frequently this just adds to the confusion if we could be direct explicit with what we are trying to say that would be appreciated again i will prompt about metaphors if you could take about five minutes to share whatever it is that you need to say that would be grand uh, make sure everyone has at least one opportunity to speak much obliged if you know you're in a noisy environment, if you could use your mute button, that also would be appreciated just so that we don't have to fight over a lot of background noise and distortion. Right on. Uh, that's it. Oh, I remember, there were so many instances. Remember my other incident from the yoga practice this week? Last instance I'll share for this week. I'm going to class. This was what day was this was Friday yesterday going to morning class. I get in. I have my spot. I'm in the same location every class where I'm kind of away from everybody. I can have some space, can minimize being touched, assaulted, anything by any of the whites that are in class. Oddly, there are two non-white, non-black people in this class. They are in the area where I would generally be, which generally is fine. It just means that I move even further away uh, from everyone closer to the wall, which is what I did. Uh, so I had my water bottle set on the desk near where I was going to you know, be set up. I didn't have my mat yet, though. This non-white female goes to grab my water bottle. I don't like people touching my property, particularly things that I'm going to put uh, in my mouth. 
So she grabs my water bottle, calling herself being nice, bringing it to me because she didn't know where I was going to be located. I didn't need her help. I think uh, Mr. Williams uh, has talked frequently about you help when people ask for help, that sometimes you can be discourteous when you are offering help that has not been requested. So that's one. So I go, I get my wife, I'm like, nah, I don't need to move. Thank you. I'm good. So I'm going to sit down. Incidentally, she's with another non-white person uh, where we did have conflict. It wasn't like brawl in the street, but uh, brawl in the street. Uh, but we did have conflict. And oof, unfortunately, that is a cow bell ring. In fact, I forgot I mentioned this non-white person on the program. <laughs> you can go back in the archives. If you've been listening for at least a year, I mentioned on the compensatory call-in, this non-white person, we used to take yoga classes together at a different studio. We walked from class. We talked about racism. What did she say? I think the police in Seattle are great. I don't think there's a problem with racism with the police in Seattle at all. What did I say? Did you know the police in Seattle have a federal monitor just like Ferguson? Pick the uh, city, mind you, Newark, New Jersey or, you know, wherever, New Orleans. And she says, no, I didn't know that. Every time I have an interaction with them, they're great. And I said, well, uh, they have a federal monitor. That's fact. That's not, you know, subjective experience, much less the time that they tried to arrest me for brushing my teeth outside. But Anyway, so we had that whole conversation. The police ended up shaking her down on the subway like five days later because she didn't have a receipt that she paid her $2 to take the train here in Seattle. But this is who the person is in class that she's sitting next to. So obviously this is not going to be Gus T. Renegade's pal and favorite person in the world. So I don't want to be super close to her either. So I'm scooting over. I'm down. We haven't even started practice. The same non-white female who had grabbed my water bottle initially, she grabs my water bottle again and says, oh, I'm going to move this out of the way so I don't. (laughs) Whoa, whoa. I have not. I mean, being in a yoga class where other people are touching your property like repeatedly, I'm not accustomed to that at all. They're in yoga classes where they say we're all friends here. Obviously, I do not subscribe to that, even if they're non-white people. I literally snatched my water bottle out of her hands. Like, what are you doing? Stop touching my property. And uh, we didn't have any further words. I scooted over a little bit more so that we could have even more space. But I can totally understand the people who say that there are a lot of hazards in the yoga class. That's why I wear my, or now I can say plural, shirts. I have lots of shirts that I wear to class that have a very direct, explicit message about white supremacy racism. Uh, And I generally do lots to make sure that I have space. And even with that, I am prepared uh, because I know we do not have regard for black people. They can just be treated any kind of way, whatever even by other non-white people. So I had lots of instances uh, this week that I could have shared about from the yoga mat. We'll leave it there, though. Hopefully, we won't have any of that in Lake Arrowhead in California because we had lots of courteous victims who were super excited about practicing yoga with exclusively black people. So hopefully, we'll have that same uh, sort of energy as we practice yoga with lots of space, courtesy, and uh, keeping our hands to ourselves. 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. Someone did ask, 
I'll save it for later. I have something I'll remember to bring it up in the last 30 minutes. First few folks who dialed in, star six one if you have commentary. First few folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have comments to share. Line should be open. Proceed. Peace, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Peace, Gus, um, and to the callers and listeners. Um, I'm glad that the retreat went well. That was that was good. I talked to a couple of people that attended it, and, and I heard it was really good. So um, that's great. I wanted to um, ask you real quickly if you ran across the story of those um the youth in, I think it was South Carolina, that they went on a field trip and they went to like a old plantation or something, and um, they were made to pick cotton and sing old Negro spiritual slave songs. And um, when the backlash came, the school defended it by saying it was a part of the Great Depression and didn't mention anything about slavery. They said it was just a reenactment of the Great Depression. I just wanted to know if, um, if the, the callers or the listeners um, have heard about the story and what's your take on I know it's tackiness as usual, but just wanted to get your take on that story. Thank you for taking the call. Much obliged, sir. Glad you heard the retreat was constructive, at least for some folks. Uh, that specific incident, South Carolina, I don't think I've heard of that exact incident, but there are so many of those instances of there being some sort of field trip. That's, you know, what it's under the guise under, uh, where non-white students are taken to some plantation or slave auction, uh, or wherever it is. And, uh, they're given, that's what they happened in Virginia with the coon man's wife, uh, Pam, Pam Northam. That was just last week where they went, uh, I forgot where they went in Virginia and she was with them on the tour and handed out cotton to the black students. Uh, they've had tons of these. I think they had another one that was some years ago where they took the students out and they put them, uh, in shackles. Uh, this, this is a regular occurrence, uh, talking about patterns in the system of racism, white supremacy. This seems to be very, very common, uh, taking children out. Uh, and reenacting some form of white supremacy racism uh, earlier eras of it. So I haven't heard of that instance, but it happens regularly. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, Gus. Um, this is the caller from Virginia. Hope everyone is doing well. Um, I did want to address the clip about white so-called friends. I had an interesting incident that happened about a week ago. Um, a so-called white friend whom I knew from middle school, kind of out of the blue, <laughs> decided to reach out to me. I probably talked to him maybe once or twice a year. 
um, and he seemed very interested in um, knowing if I had ever encountered any racism growing up in our school or in our town. And so I shared a couple of incidents with him, but I thought it was very strange because the, he asked me this question, knowing me for 35 years, he's never asked this question. Um, he then proceeded to ask my opinion on the movie, The Green Book, which I had not seen. And he said he really wanted me to see it. He thought it was very good. He'd like to hear my opinion on it. So that was suspicious because, of course, you know, um, I assumed that there might be some racism in the movie that he wanted to discuss with me. Um, so I did see the movie and I shared with him afterwards that I thought it had nothing uplifting to offer black people, but I understood why white people liked it um, because the man was mistreated throughout the movie. Um, but of course he maintained his um, allegiance to white people and wanting to, you know, be around them, et cetera, and accepted by them. And so his response to me was, oh, great points. Thank you very much for sharing. Um, but the point I want to make on that so-called white friends issue is that I think that's how they practice racism um, by claiming to have a black friend and talking with that black friend about racism to kind of get information out of them about it. But um, they don't do that with their white friends. So uh, that's the comment I wanted to make about that, a recent example in my life so-called white friend asking me what i thought about racism as if i could solve the problem that's all i'll mute my line wowzers um i guess before you before you mute your line did you get to ask him any questions about you know did he experience any racism did he practice any racism growing up or observe uh, whites practicing racism going up, but did you get to ask him any questions? I did ask a question. The question I asked him is if he feels that he experiences quote unquote privilege as a white person. I know you don't like that word, but I knew that he would understand what I meant by that word. And right away he said, Oh yes, 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 of course. <laughs> I mm. said, really? How so? And he said, well, you know, I, I have a, you know, grew up with a good family and, you know, I grew up in a good neighborhood and, you know, life has been pretty easy for me. That was his response to that question that I asked him, but that's, that's all I asked. Uh, We've I never talked about racism before. So I was quite thrown off by his desire to talk about it. Um, if we do talk about it again, I'm going to have some other, you know, better questions queued up, but that was the only one I could think of kind of, uh, you know, at the time. Much obliged, much obliged. She was at the retreat, our caller uh, in Virginia. Bless your heart. She's surviving the Commonwealth. Um, anytime that a white person, particularly like you said out of that, like this is some white person. It's not like you all have regular conversations uh, about white supremacy, racism, uh, and, you know, are reading different books, reading Michelle Alexander and Dr. Welsing and having, you know, deep exchanges. Uh, that, as you said, it like, wow, what's even provoking this? Like, why would he call me to ask me about this movie? And when I've experienced racism, like, I would ask a lot of questions with suspicion. Like, whoa, what is going on here? Have you been calling random black people throughout the day and asking them about this movie? Have you seen them? Like, 
it would be lots of questions. Like, I think I said that before, like, uh, it, it should never be in a conversation with a white person where they're asking you lots of questions and getting information. It should be the other way around you asking them lots of questions. They are the expert on racism, uh, white supremacy, like absolutely. And this is an older white person, like older than 20, like, oh yeah, like, uh, practicing racism deliberately absolutely uh and client and when he gets off the phone and say oh man i was just talking to one of my nigger friends we had a grand old chat about uh what's that green book yeah we had a grand old chat about green book it was great that was one of my nigger friends see i got three or four of them see we have regular phone conversations great old gal that's what he'll be able to say when they call him up to do the survey uh other folks who dialed in if i'll be heard Thomas in New York. Much obliged, sir. Do they have any that was asked on workplace racism? Because you mentioned last week about Alexa and your one of the race soldiers on your job. She was, I guess, overhearing the stream of your conversation. Is there anything in the policy and procedure about recording devices in the workplace or anything like that? Um, there is. Um and it does violate um, workplace um, procedures to have a recording device at the work. It certainly does. It's just that I'm gonna go to her and complain to her about her work, uh, about her listening device. I mean that that won't work, and going to someone else won't work either. I had an incident this week, but I won't get into that. I'll call in next week to tell you about it. Um, depends on how things work out this week. Um, but yeah, I, I don't see it. Um, it, it it's, it's against the policy. Because I work for a place with um, documentation and things of that nature, but you know, it, it, what can you say? Place of permanent. Um, but to that lady who just called, first question is: Have you ever practiced racism? Have you ever witnessed anyone practice racism? What did you do? You know, what type of things do you hear white people talk about? You know, to make it very personal to them. I, I find that. You know, uh, he'll probably try to get off the phone after that. But, you know, um, you know, privilege and all the perks and benefits they get, they love talking about that. Oh, yeah, I get all types of things, but how did you get them? You know, they don't want to talk about that. Um, I have a friend in um, Georgia who said you know, his daughter was running track. And they forced, you know, went on um, the girls to run against the transgender boys. Um which is totally um, unequitable. They can't beat them. So very interesting. Um, the clip on Brazil, three articles that could show you the level of confusion in Brazil. Um, Brazilians who look like us are in serious danger. Uh, one, this is from 2011, The Guardian. Um and it's taking the statistics from 2010. It says Brazilian census shows Afro African Brazilians in the majority for the first time. Preliminary results show 15.7% of Brazilians now define themselves as black or mixed compared to 47% white. So um, that's one. Another one, 136 variations of Brazilian skin colors. And um, they asked a million plus Brazilians to describe their race based off their skin color, and they got 136 different answers. And um, the last one, from Brazil, police killing at a record high in Rio. 
unlawful actions undermine public scrutiny. This is from Human Rights Watch, December 19, 2018. Uh, 1,444 people were killed by the police in Rio de Janeiro State um, just in that year, which broke the record. 1,444 in the state, um, which is Rio, is the third largest state. Uh, Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo had three times the amount of people as Rio. So just in that one state, they have more murders than uh, we had in the whole United States by police. Um, racist on the police force, the Mamiya clip. Um, in 2016, you'll find multiple articles that came out about a report from 19, I mean, uh, from 2006 with the FBI warning uh, of white supremacists infiltrating law enforcement nationwide, city, state, park, campus police forces, and even the sheriff's department across the whole country. And that was a report that came out by the FBI. And um, they were just bringing attention 10 years and nothing was done um, to stop these white supremacists to join the police force. So um, that's what it is. Um, Stephen Clark, uh, it reminds me a lot of Trayvon Hayes. Um, remember Rachel Gentrell? Um, put, they have a consistent um, way of putting the black males who are victim of police violence and violence by the hand of white people on trial for their own murder um, and um, using their own data and public records or, or phone records and things of that nature against them. They put the dead on trial, um, and that's consistent. Um, so um, that's just how they do. Uh, the Democratic representative, Ilhan, I think her name is, Omar, I spoke recently on another show to Cynthia McKinney, who's a former congresswoman from the state of Georgia. And she said that uh, one of the big problems that she had when she was in that um, office was she refused to take the oath to Israel. And um, I found it very interesting that all of that played out just a couple of weeks later, uh, where this lady is being ridiculed for pretty much not saying too much, anything bad, I don't think, or anything untrue, but, you know, it is, you know, what it is. Robert Kraft case, um, I think that looking at the evidence that's been putting out, I think that this is definitely showing that he's being punished for breaking the code because um, all he did was got a massage with what they call a happy ending. I mean, that's not, nothing I don't think that um, would warrant all of this. Um, Jesse, 16 counts. Um, and I hear that the federal government is looking into charging him for sending himself that powder. And, um, you know, if the FBI charges you, it's pretty much a wrap. Um, the reasons why blacks don't walk around making up big crimes, you know, because he's a victim. He's confused. You know, he has a white parent. Um, but we don't do that. And we don't just generally commit violent crimes against white people because we know that those things generally get investigated and solved. <laughs> you know, they don't um, tolerate that. Um, the white supremacists this week work their magic. Um, to pull the attention off all of the rapists and white supremacists, child molesters like um, Ed Buck and um, or, um, Kevin Spacey and all the rest of them. So they pulled out two black women, Oprah and Gail. One went at Michael Jackson, the other one went at R. R. Kelly. Um, Oprah 
in that interview redefined child rape to not include sex at all, no penetration, no oral intercourse, no penis involved. I was like, how does how does that happen? Um, and um, the last thing I'll add, Gus, is um, this um, technology called Deep Fake or Fake App. Um, it's been improved over the years. It's nothing new. Um, but it used to be used for the purpose of revenge porn. And then it was um, pretty much perfected on with the celebrity porn site. Um, pretty much taking footage of people, especially stars from the paparazzi, the videos, the movies, TV appearances, et cetera, that they did. And um, having all those different facial expressions to overlay on a video that's not their body, but you put their face there and it looks real. Um, they also could do it with the voice. So um, going forward, anything that you hear or see, it could be under scrutiny. I'll mute my line. Thank you, Gus. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. Uh, white people work their magic. That is a metaphor uh, significant because I do think that's one that being uh, explicit about uh, practicing racism, white supremacy in such a manner uh, that you are distracted the individuals that we think of in terms of being sexual predators, it's not Robert Kraft, it's not these white priests, uh, it's not uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, long list uh, of whites, uh, Jimmy Savile, uh, world problem, uh, it's none of them, uh, Jerry Sandusky, it's not him, long list, Mary Kay Letourneau can't leave out the white woman right here in Seattle, it's not that, it's Michael Jackson? Uh, who's the other one from this week? Was it R. Kelly? Same. Yeah. Michael Jackson, R. Kelly. Yeah. Those are the two from this week. Very important uh, act of racism, white supremacy. That is uh, substantially more than magic. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if we've not heard from you at all, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, M. Han DC. Yes, sir. Greetings. I wanted to mention white people are very smart and they are well trained. They understand what they are doing. They are so intelligent that they can harm you and convince you that they didn't understand that they harmed you. They go through their entire life understanding how to harm people. They learn the English language to harm you. They learn the procedures at their workplace to harm you. They learn the science of this reality to harm you. Everything they learn, they learn to harm you. They are in dedicated. That word, they are dedicated. The other thing I wanted to say was with what reparations, you can't have reparations 
within a system of white supremacy? What are you asking to repair? You're asking white people to repair the harm that they've committed, the crimes that they've committed in white su- within the system of white supremacy. However, however, you cannot repair or fix or you cannot solve, you can't solve the problems created by white supremacy. You can't, you can't fix the, you can't fix it and have the system at the same time. You, if they're still committing the harm, how can they fix the harm, fix, fix you or repair you from the harm that they've committed? It doesn't make sense. We're not going to get reparations from these people. This, we don't need paper dollars from them. We need the end of white supremacy. We need the end of white supremacy. And we all have to agree on that. We don't need to argue about reparations. We don't need to argue about any new names of movements. We need to be focused on ending white supremacy. Every black person who chooses to speak, it needs to be focused ending white supremacy. That's all. Thank you. Much obliged, sir. He, too, was at the yoga retreat in Virginia. First time around. Uh, Other folks uh, that dialed in that we have not heard from at all if you have commentary you would like to share line should be open while we're waiting for folks to Get there, uh, I guess, if they're getting to a spot where they can speak or getting their thoughts organized to share. Uh, Imhan DC, have you continued with uh, the plant-based eating and or the yoga since you have departed Virginia? I've continued with a lot of (laughs) plant-based eating, but I've been eating some meat, uh, unfortunately. But my mom, fortunately, has been cooking. You know, I should cook myself, but I don't have a wife, but, you know, but my mom's been cooking. So that's been, been pretty awesome. But yeah, so I've been eating well um, and I've been doing some stretches, but I need, I need a, a process. I need, I need to know the, the, how you say the, the same process that, that, that you were doing or the stages or the, um, the steps. I can't think of the word I'm looking for. Okay. Yeah, I guess the sequencing of the posture, yes. I reckon. Yes. Gotcha. That uh I that can be a process learning all of that. They do have videos online, but yeah, that's uh not even that difficult. Like you'll get the hang of it once you if you take any classes or online or what have you. Um 
yeah, you'll recognize it's a it's a general sequence, especially it's like vinyasa classes. It's a sequence, but good to hear about the eating. Uh, hope folks, if you were at the retreat or even not, there were folks who just heard uh, when Dr. Lathan was on the program uh, a few weeks back and was talking about the impact of plant based eating. Uh, taking better care of yourself, how that can have such a dramatic impact on health and well-being. Uh, folks just from that said that they started cutting back on the meat products and eating more fruits uh, and vegetables. So if you were at the retreat or just trying to do better, I hope you will continue. All of that is a process. It's generally not going to be a, you know, just five minutes of, oh, okay, I'm going to eat well. It generally is a process. It takes a little time to make those changes uh, in what foods you purchase and what foods you cook, learning how to cook. It might be a whole new process of learning how to cook. That's something that we're hoping to include with more detail when we do the retreat in California. Cooking workshop, We had cooking workshop in Virginia. We'll hopefully be able to replicate that in California uh, after it has been refined so that we can give out more tips to help people with preparing fruits and vegetables uh, in a healthy, tasty manner. Number again, six. Oh, yes, sir. Okay. Um, uh, to go with, along with what you were saying, um, we need to also get back to growing our own vegetables. And I just want to just make a public announcement that um, when you do cut out meats and certain foods that you're used to eating and that you so-called love, you should never love food, um, but that's another subject. As far as the taste, your, your taste buds, your palate will conform eventually. I know it doesn't taste good right now, it might be bland. It might be a lot of things, but just if you keep stick with it, it will really start tasting much more appealing to you. So don't give up. And um, even people with them in uh, confined spaces that may not have space to grow vegetation, um, they have indoor systems that you can use as well. And you know, I think it's really good to as spices and um, different herbs that you can grow that can benefit you greatly. So I just want to put that out there to the cows. Thanks, Gus. Much obliged, sir. Uh, I do think that is an important uh, point. Your palate does change. We talked about that with Dr. Lathan, and we were supposed to have a uh, health and wellness workshop, self-care workshop, really, uh, at the Virginia retreat, but we didn't have time. We got thrown off schedule. Uh, the mud and then the faulty lavatories. Hopefully neither will be a problem in California. Uh, but that was a point that I wanted to talk about. Uh, there are so many chemicals in what they call food uh, in the Cheetos and, you know, cheeseburgers and all the rest of it, the MSG and just all these chemicals and what have you that uh, it, it, creates a lot of addiction and a lot of unnatural uh, flavors, all that sugar and salt and everything else. When you go to plant-based eating, you don't have all of that 
uh, all those toxins and poisons and flavorings. Uh, so it does take some time. Uh, at first, it might seem like, oh, this is, you know, not tasty at all. But your palate does adjust and you can't have seasoned food. Uh, there were lots of seasonings used for the food that we had in Virginia. I season my food daily, so it definitely uh, does not have to be bland. But it is a difference uh, when you're not having all that sugar, salt, poison uh, in the food, chemicals, toxins uh, on your food. It is a major difference when you switch to just having an apple, Brussels sprouts, an orange. Major, major difference. But your palate will adjust. That's what you're supposed to have. The orange is what you're supposed to have, not the Cheetos. Uh, number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate and i will say that comment maybe one of the most important comments of the year the white man telling me that i made him sick just marking the classes that i've taken on the yoga board i had a white man welsing moment i had a white man suspected racist i was sitting down and he offered me a cup or he went to offer me a cup of coffee and he stopped. I didn't say a word. I didn't answer. Uh, he said, would you like a cup of coffee? And he stopped and he said, whoa, you probably don't drink coffee. You look pretty healthy. Generally, I don't drink coffee. Not that I'm opposed to it or what have you, but just I'm not a I never was a coffee person. I never was a morning person. So that was not like a go have coffee routine. I have had a cup of coffee, but no, I'm not. I don't have a Starbucks card here in Seattle. That is not my routine. Get up and have even yesterday. I got up for 6 a.m. yoga. Even then, uh, I did not have coffee at any point in the morning. I think when we are taking better care of ourselves and it looks like, oh, wow, this person, this nigra is taking care of themselves. Wow. I think whites no, that right there is working against what we have planned for Negras, they are not supposed to be taking care of themselves. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have commentary, proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, retired firefighter. Greetings, Gus. Greetings, everyone else. Uh, I uh, became inspired to uh, to comment by uh, Mr. D. C.'s uh, comments on the word reparations. Uh, the uh, key part of the word is repair. And his use of counter-racist logic, uh, and I, I think along this, I try to anyway think along the same terms. Uh, how can you repair something and the problem that is destroying and corrupting everything is still? alive and well, it still, it still is, is functioning. I don't use a metaphor. It still is functioning. Matter of fact, 
it may be questionable that is actually that is zenith of functioning. Uh, this is this is a a very profound means just in itself of mentioning about reparations. The white person I'm talking about mentioning the word is a obvious sign, an obvious act of racism, white supremacy to even make that suggestion of reparations as though the problem is gone somewhere. It's ended. Uh, and, uh, I think it's. I think that type of thinking, based on his comments, is something that uh, needs to needs to be common amongst non-white people, uh, because it's actually it's being scientific. You know, you're doing some something that's called thinking. That's right. You know, <laughs> and uh, which is uh, probably uh, one of the one of the. Uh, uh, attributes, quote-unquote human attributes that uh, uh, the, uh, the races have uh, actually uh, uh, kind of like uh, muted in us. Uh, I've been having, I, I still haven't factored in my thoughts on uh, the interview, the interview with Mr. Kelly, as well as the uh, the reports on the late Mr. Jackson and primarily it's been by non-white black people for some, some reason in my mind, I'm thinking that the two non-white victims of racist white supremacy who has been doing the reporting on these two individuals, one deceased has been asked to do so. Uh, I, I'm talking about Miss King and Miss Renfrey. Uh, they've been asked to do so, and they basically accepted the uh, the uh, the job. Uh, is it true that Miss King actually financially benefits from the will financially benefit from the interview that she conducted with Mr. Kelly? That's a question. I do not know. I, I I just mentioned because I thought I heard something about it. She's been getting a lot of congratulations. And I'm trying to figure out on what what are they what are they congratulating in that in that particular scene in itself. Two victims of racism white supremacy. And it didn't look it didn't for some it didn't look very constructive to me on on the whole uh, the whole situation. Uh, but I still haven't I still haven't really uh, processed it all other than I do suspect that if I had to just think very quickly, I would say that it's something it, it, it actually. Uh, does not go into the column of being constructive. <laughs> I just put it that way. Uh, the whole interview and, and it all, and also the one with uh, someone who's 
been dead for 10 years. And then all of a sudden, and I can, you know, see if it was white people who were actually doing the, doing the interviewing. But I, I think it was on purpose that, uh, that the, uh, the interviewing was done by non-white black people. And those are just some thoughts of mine that I uh, uh, had this week. Thank you. Much obliged. Retired firefighter, context of white supremacy. Uh, and I think you said that they could have been asked, meaning uh, Gail King, Oprah Winfrey, both victims of white supremacy, that they could have been asked to conduct these interviews. I was thinking the word also, they could have been ordered to conduct these interviews. Or that, yes. Yeah, that, yes, yes, that's true. Uh, because we are still in a system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, and uh, I just, I thought of that word because racists, sometimes they can come and say, uh, look here, Oprah, uh, things been good. Had your TV show, network, magazines, all of that been great. Uh, we got a billion dollars for you. Got this here interview on Michael Jackson. Uh, you know, we think he did it. So that's the tone we want you to take. Billion dollars. They could come and do and ask you to, you know, come do Or it could be, you know, hey, <laughs> now you've seen the allegations against Michael Jackson. Hate to uh, have to have some allegations against you. But, uh, you know, maybe we won't have to do that. Maybe you can go out and do a good job. Get it done. Thanks, Oprah. They could do it that way where they are also, quote-unquote, asking you to do the project. You got lots of ways when you got people under total domination. That's what domination looks like, system of racism. And I say that because a lot of times, I know you said uh, that right now it seems that Miss uh, King and maybe Miss Winfrey too, I don't know, uh, are getting congratulations and people are saying that they did a good job. Uh, I know it can also really quickly go, you know, that no good coon and, you know, I can't believe that you did sell out and that sort of thing. I think it's really important to remember the people that are most to blame uh, are white, uh, especially even if they came up uh, at the retreat. People get on the boule and such. Uh, Mr. Fuller has a great uh, segment where uh, someone had brought up the boule and he just went into question mode. And he said, well, how many nuclear arms do the boule have stacked in the foothills? How many <laughs> bunkers of gold does the boule have, you know, stored uh, in an impenetrable safe? How many conferences are called where it's, wait a minute, we're making a world decision. We got to have the boule present. You know, we're talking about global issues here. When 9-11, that's another, that's the one that I pointed out when uh, George W. came out, 9-11, the rubble, ground zero in New York, that he come out and say, whoa, 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 New Yorkers, be calm. I just got off the phone with the boule. It's taken care of. I don't remember that happening. Now, if you do, let me know. Uh, I don't think any of these folks, anybody, Oprah Winfrey, Gail King, anybody, any non-white person, if they are non-white there's a system of racism, white supremacy. They cannot be to blame, uh, even for these interviews or whatever else uh, has happened. It has got to be directly, indirectly, somebody classified as white who is most to blame. 
could be an error. Other folks that we missed uh, totally, uh, if you have commentary, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi, um, Gus. Uh, this is Gus Mania. I'm Ann Gus. Um, I agree with you, Gus. Um, they are um, most to blame. And um, I also wanted to say, like, in regards to your incidences that you've been running into at the yoga, uh, at your yoga practice, I just, you know, I know that you know that um, you wear those shirts and you have been um, somewhat, they somewhat know what you do. So uh, with, saying, with that said, being that they are aware that you have a, you know, a broadcast of, uh, and you're on the radio and what you're doing, it could very well be possibility that these individuals, these so-called random people that are coming up to you making certain comments is because of they are uh, actually listening to you. And what happens is that now they're coming to the studio and now they're making little comments based on, because it's basically like them trying to let you know that they, they know a little bit about you. Um, even though you haven't been, um, you've been pretty much like straightforward. I, I and I love that. Um, you've been straightforward and letting them know, like, um, it takes the act of being very bold to even, um, um, go in a, a, a place that's filled with a bunch of, um, suspects and you're, you know, maybe like a minority out of that whole group and wear that, wear those shirts that you wear. It's, that takes a lot of courage. And I commend you for doing that. But like I said, you know, with that said, I I don't think and I do not believe in any coincidences. And it seems like it's a tactic because, you know, these people are just coming up to you saying, like, you, just, you said that the one guy, um, one suspect says to you that um, something about... Um, uh, something about where you were going to say something about Bill Cosby or something like that, and he was saying, "No, you don't. You don't. He doesn't like touching you, uh, touching people, and stuff." It's like they're mimicking everything that you already say on a program. It just seems like it's like a repeat of stuff that you already had discussed before. But there's now they're coming to you and they're repeating it back to you, making it seem as if it's something that they're saying. And also with that lady, that um, lady from Virginia that called, I would find that uh, as being suspicious also because, um, you know, an individual that all of a sudden, it seems as if they're just giving you a call and they're um, fishing. They're, they're basically like dating and trying to get information out of you, you know. So, you know, um, you're on the air. Um, you always say that, you know, you're having problems, technical issues, you know, and people listening in on to your, you know, our conversations, they know what we're saying and, you know, you never know. These people could just be coming up to you and basically still practicing somewhat um, some racism and basically trying to be um, covert in their manner of letting you know basically trying to see if you're going to catch on to the fact that they, they, they basically kind of like telling you that they know what you're up to. So that's, that was just, that's just my take on the situation. And um, that's all I have. Thanks for letting me share. Much obliged. Uh, folks certainly could uh, be, I mean, hey, I have been wearing my 
cow shirts for a while at the yoga studio and they have the cow's logo right on the t-shirt. So, you know, I certainly don't make much of an effort to uh, conceal my association with the broadcast. And uh, I said that during teacher training, you know, folks could have uh, easily located the program and, you know, all of the above. So that absolutely could be true. Um, let's see, other folks, any any folks that we missed totally have a hand up uh, with commentary that they wanted to make sure they share? While folks are getting there, thoughts together. Uh, we should be here on Tuesday. Muhammad Abdul Rahim. Uh, he is a black male author uh, of the book The N-Word is No Secret in the Service. Memoirs in the U.S. Secret Service. Uh, he should be with us uh, this coming Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, he talks about racism, white supremacy that he experienced working in the Secret Service. And specifically, uh, he talks about uh, the Miriam Carey case. If people remember uh, Miriam I. Carey, black mom, uh, we've had some of her family members call in to the program over the years. Uh, but she was in Washington, D.C. This is 2013. She had her daughter in the rear of the vehicle. Uh, they alleged that she ran through a White House barrier, which is not even accurate. We talk about that all the time, accurate information. Uh, and said so that, you know, this high speed, you know, chase through Washington, D.C. and uh, that they were forced to shoot her. She was unarmed uh, in her vehicle uh, when they shot and killed her, could have killed her one year old child as well. Thankfully, the child uh, survived. Uh, but this is 2013 uh, where this incident happened. Think of all of the incidents of whites who scaled the White House, particularly when President Obama was the occupant, uh, who scaled the White House and were armed, some of them, and had all kinds of ammunition in their vehicles and such. All of them, they got arrested, lived to tell about it, taken into custody, still uh, still in existence, not Miss Carey, unarmed, had her daughter with her. Uh, but he writes about that in the book as well, but he should be with us Tuesday, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, tune in. Reading is more important than watching television. Uh, other folks dialed in that we uh, missed completely. Folks dialed in that we missed totally. Now here. Greetings, Ivy. Greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers um, on the line. Um, I wanted to say about the plant-based eating that um, we, especially as black people, um, should be on our guard or should, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's a metaphor, but just to be, I guess, careful and be watchful about um, blaming black people for the way that we eat, because obviously, you know, all groups, you know, eat meat and things like that. And the the food out here, it's not bad in and of itself. 
it's bad because white people have poisoned it. They've put 15 million grams of sugar or salt or hormones or whatever else, and they're also doing that to the fruit and vegetables as well. Like you'll see the um, strawberries that are really, really big or the chicken that's really, really big or the green beans that's really, really big. Those are pumps full of hormones. Same thing with the bananas. So at the end of the day, we we have to we have to solve the problem. And then even growing your own food. Well, white people are spraying chemicals in the air, so called chemical trails. You know, to that that will come down on our food that we, you know, are growing. So we really have to have to solve the problem because they are they are dedicated to terrorism. They are dedicated to killing people, and they're dedicated to killing black people, as M. Han D.C. always says, and I really appreciated his commentary um, tonight. And I'm not saying that anybody is, is blaming anybody, but I'm just saying that that's, that's easy to do and, and, and not have any compassion for the fact that we've been victimized by terrorists. And they are, you know, I, I'm, you had um, M. Boyden was his name, um, Ashangi, someone mentioned him. Um, not too long ago, and he talked about how even um, the USDA, um, the white people at the USDA, you know, they're involved in even, you know, the fruits and vegetables and things like that. If you see that label on a particular food, even though the ingredients may just say it's just strawberries or whatever the case may be, that means, you know, that the the white people in the USDA are involved in it, um, poisoning it. So it's, 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 it's like... You, you you do what you can and it's it's important it's an important thing to do but just you know I think it's important to be careful about um just uh blaming anyone for the way that you know we've all been conditioned to eat and we've been lied to and we're constantly being lied to about you know milk is healthy because of cal- calcium and and meat is healthy because of protein and all these different things and um I just want to say two more things um one of them has already also been brought up White people are using, first of all, white people are, white people are attacking prominent black men to condition us all to see black men as rapists. And then white people are using victims of racism like um, Oprah Winfrey to um, take the focus off of white people um, when the problem is white people. And they are victimizing people like um, Oprah and people like uh, Miss King. And uh, I just had a quick question for you guys. Is there a timetable on you going home? And that was it. I'm in my line. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Gus. Uh, much obliged, Ivy. Uh, looking like perhaps May. Uh, perhaps May. We shall see. But perhaps May. That is what they shall say. Uh, that would still be, I think, a year and a half of dislocation. But uh We'll see. Month that's a month and a half or so. So we'll see. Do you want to go back, Gus? Uh, I definitely miss my bed. Like uh, the only uh, this has been cool because it's easy to access the uh, yoga studio. But I definitely miss my bed, and I mean, I mean, you know, when you're at your residence where you have your things and everything set up, like where you can be. Uh, comfortable, right, in your residence and to not have that, to not be in your bed, put that in quotes for a year, year and more than that, almost a year and a half at this point, like, uh, 
Oof, like, yeah, that's, uh, I miss my bed. <laughs> I miss my bed. No place like home. Yeah, put that in quotes. Put that in quotes. Uh, let's see, did, doo, 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 update. Uh, is there any folks that we missed completely? Any folks that we missed totally? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. I was thinking about that one segment uh, where the the black male who was uh, killed by the race soldier, I believe, or uh, I, I can't remember because when I seen that, uh, the report on the news was that a white person or was that a non-white person Gus did you see that or was the person who killed the person in here in Florida now that's the one I think retired firefighter was talking about yesterday on workplace racism uh, where mm-hmm. the former officer because they say they terminated him who was just convicted um, retired firefighter said he thinks he's not white unless I'm mistaken uh, from the video that I saw he looks like someone who would probably not be classified as white. Uh, he looked like he had enough uh, pigmentation, uh, I think. the uh, Am I make sure I'm not in error? Uh, retired firefighter, the officer who was just convicted uh, for the shooting down in Florida with the black male, he had the concealed carry permit and, and all that. He was just convicted like a couple days ago. Did you think that officer was non-white? That's correct. And uh, they they did a they meaning the white supremacists did a, a very slick uh, uh, juxtapose with that person. They had they had a, a big clear picture of that person, and then I think they put the picture of the prosecutor or somebody a white person uh, right afterwards. And that indicated to me that it was a big difference between that enforcement official who was convicted and a quote-unquote white person. Uh, and uh, on Mr. Clark's Facebook, uh, he has a lot of he has a lot of uh, people who uh, view his Facebook, and uh, they were comment, com- commenting on it also that uh, probably the reasons why. Uh, he was convicted is because he was also a non-white person because the last time a enforcement official down here was even indicted was in, I think, 1983, something like that. Sometime, sometime in the 1980s, and it probably was uh, uh, this white male by the name of uh, Lozano. Back in 1989, I believe it was. Yeah. The, the person we're talking about, uh, his name is Noman Raja, R-A-J-A. Correct. Noman Raja. hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. So at least for me, and I can post the link so you can see a picture of it. And this is a great photo because they got the one where he's being convicted. So directly next to him, they have a blonde white woman. 
and then they got him and then seated they got a black male so you can get a great you know someone who i think would definitely be classified as white this fella and a black male so you got a nice range of melanin to make a judgment uh but uh caller in florida it seems myself uh retired firefighter both think this person would not be classified as white mr rajah and there's another case that that is that is uh going on as we speak that that enforcement official appears to not be a white person also but it's not a black person either and he's probably going to get convicted in my opinion Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Thanks for the clarification, because I was wondering myself when I did see the footage, if he was either a white or non-white person. Uh, And that's interesting, too, that I think they said it was on the audio that it was 30 years or something like that. So I'm thinking that would be sometime in the 80s where I think the last... uh, police officer or an official enforcement official was convicted. Um, the next one was the, I think that was the high school kids that did the, the Nazi party or something like that with the cups. I believe that was orange County. Um, and that was, that was uh profound how that came after, I believe that came after the segment about the anti-Semitism, and they don't seem to focus on, the white people that are doing it. I mean, they're using codified terms, I think, like hate crime. They don't say who the practitioners of these hate crimes. They'll just say, well, the victims are primarily people of color, and I guess it's religiously affiliated after that. Like, it's really no clarification in that. Like, what do they mean by religious affiliated or people of color? I'm thinking most likely is um, black people and non-white people or whatever. and the uh, the segment on the Young Turks, that does looks like an example of the uh, racial focal pointing, where they only segment a certain amount of white people to say that they are the overt racist and you can't worry about anybody else. Um, and my my last comment was on the I think that was the was it Michael Cohen, the. Uh, the trial or whatever that was, he was answering questions or asking questions or whatever. And the, the white man that had the black female and he was saying, Hey, you know, I have, I have a, what did he say? Black nieces and nephews and, and my family and everything. And, uh, he said, you know what, for people to have a response that I'm a racist just for, uh, mentioning that, a black lady was employed by Trump or something like that. You know what? You all are the racist. And that's like a, uh, a racial parrying deflect. You know, like a parry is like when you evade and you try to dodge something and the deflect to put it back on the, the, uh, the person who's pointing that out. Or I guess you could say is accusing the white person of being a racist. So they're like a parry or whatever, and they put it back on the victim. So that's another thing I noticed. That's another pattern attack that they use. They call you the racist. 
So uh, that's that's all I have for now. Thanks for allowing me to, uh, to share. Donald Trump used that one, I think, not too long ago at the press conference when the black female journalist, when she asked him about, I think it was a question about white nationalism and people saying that he supported uh, white nationalism. And he said, that's a racist question. You would even ask such a thing. Black people, I think it was almost the exact same thing. Like, black people love me. What are you doing asking a question like that? That's something a racist would ask. You're asking racist questions. Next question. That, that was, I think that's exactly what he did. Like, uh, within the last mm, six months or so, I think that was, yeah, last six months or so when, when all that happened, but very important one to be mindful of. I'm sure there'll be more of that uh, moving forward. Uh, I did deliberately have that sequenced with the segment in Orange County with the young uh, white urchins. And incidentally, they mentioned explicitly in the news report that they used red solo drinking cups to form a swastika. I didn't hear any mention of, wait a minute, do we have underage drinking here in addition to a hate crime, quote unquote? Why isn't that factored in? White people and alcohol, one of the worst conversation, uh, combinations in the known universe. But why isn't that factored in, especially with all of the opioids? And my goodness, all of the opioid epidemic and so many white people are dying like we should be all about sobriety. Why isn't that emphasized? And, you know, this this epidemic of underage drinking and how is that contributing to this incident of, you know, white supremacy and terrorism? That got or at least I didn't hear that in any of the conversations about this uh, incident. And then there was like, you know, sympathy and Incidentally, that was A.C. Thompson, who they were talking to. A.C. Thompson has been a guest on the cows. We talked about his reporting on uh, white vigilante violence after Hurricane Katrina, where whites came into the area who didn't even live in Louisiana, but they came for the opportunity to kill black people. Incidentally, he reported that it was all black males that they could verify uh, where they had these corpses where it seemed like there was some sort of terrorism all black males, corpses that they found anyway. Uh, But A.C. Thompson was a guest on the program. He used the term terrorism in his uh, reporting and talked about how this was widespread, uh, where you had suspicious uh, police killings uh, at this time, suspicious uh, citizens, uh, race soldiers, badge or no uh, killings uh, at this time. He also did reporting on Heather Heyer and the white terrorism in Charlottesville, uh, I feel AC and he's done uh, other reporting on some of the other what they call uh, white nationalist movements in the past two to three years. In my view, every time that he gives a report on white supremacy, racism and is not presenting all of that in context, because if you connect all of that, you get a much broader, more accurate depiction of what it means to be white and what we mean when we say white supremacy, racism as a total system, not looking at these as isolated incidents, but all of this is indicative of what it means to be white. War continually, for any reason, against black people, whether it's children, it doesn't matter. California, New Orleans, it doesn't matter. Virginia, it doesn't matter. White supremacy, racism, any excuse to lash out and kill black people. Uh, other folks that we have missed completely. I guess we did get to the 30 minute point. So we did have 
a listener. We have about 20 minutes uh, left in the broadcast. So if we've not heard from you at all, you should definitely raise a hand now. The number is 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Uh, we did hear some commentary, but if any of the folks who saw the Michael Jackson documentary, reading is more important than watching television. Uh, listeners did want to no comments on that. We heard some of it uh, with Oprah Winfrey's uh, involvement. Uh, I did not view it. I do not think I will be viewing it. Uh, the man not. I think I, from what I heard, it seems to be pretty one-sided in terms of Michael Jackson did this and that's that. So I don't think I need to sit through an hour or whatever it is uh, of that. But if folks have any other commentary uh, related to that, I'm sure listeners would be appreciative. Can I be heard? Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Yes, Gus. Um, thank you for um, pointing that out earlier. And I do want to correct myself. Magic is a poor choice of words. Uh, for them to pull out two black women and um, have those two black women using them as the catalyst to pull down two black men, uh, that was high-level racist refinement. Not magic. Um, so I, you're perfectly right for correcting. Um, I wanted to bring to the attention of everyone an article that came out in Bloomberg Business Week um, called Your Genetic Data Needs Protection. And um, to paraphrase, the bulk of the article is telling you about the testing companies and how they're um, linked to certain government and police uh, websites where they... Um, um, are able to use that data. And it points out that with just 2% of the data collected by white people, just 2% of the white people in the country, uh, with just 2% of their um, data, they're able to map out the DNA of the other 98% of the white people. Um, <clears throat> so uh, in this article, it says, the true power of genetic information is to realize in conjunction with other online data called from, say, public records and social networks. That becomes apparent last year when police arrested a man they suspected to be the Golden State Killer based on profiles of his distant cousin on mostly free genealogy websites called JEDmatch. Um, so they go to the, um, they find this Golden State Killer based off of a cousin he never even met who did a DNA test on this thing called JetMatch. Um, the suspect didn't have to share his data. Investigators uploaded the crime scene DNA, asked the database whose family bloodline matched it, then they used other sources to help build people's family tree until they reached the suspect, whose background meets, uh, matched with relevant details. So, <clears throat> essentially, with 2% of the white people able to map out the other 98%, I would imagine they're probably able to do the same thing with black people. And for the last few years, um, black people have been doing a lot of DNA testing to tie themselves back to Africa and other things. So pretty much they probably can use this technology to find out our DNA if you leave it anywhere. Just, you know, if one of our family members went on one of these websites and they're able to map out our whole bloodline, family tree from that, it's going to be, um, you know, 
as Dr. Weldon would say, in game white supremacy. Um, because who's to say they can't just say our DNA was there? We have no way to prove otherwise. I mean, it's it's just um one of the reasons why the system needs to end uh, immediately. And I'm with my line, cause I think. Very, <clears throat> very important information. Uh, I've pretty consistently spoken against all of that volunteering of DNA. We've had programs discussing that previously. Uh, I'm trying to think of one of the books that we read <clears throat> uh, before it was a black author. Oh, I have it saved, uh, but it's in the archives uh, where she talked about that specifically. Uh, Dorothy Roberts as well. Uh, that's not the person I was thinking of, but she also talked about that in uh, Fatal Invention. Uh, she was a guest on, well, she's been a guest repeatedly, but specifically for Fatal Invention, she was a guest on the program in 2011, and she had some of the same concerns about all of this uh, voluntarily uh, submitting of DNA and other information uh, that this could be used for lots of nefarious purposes. We got to remember Cointel Pro, medical apartheid, whatever context you need, whites. <laughs> the dedication to white supremacy racism supplants or surpasses dedication to anything else. So certainly, if we can get the genetic information of the Negras, oh my goodness, of course we're going to use this to further refine our practice. Uh, other folks that we missed uh, or other folks, if they had commentary that they wanted to make sure to share. Again, we have about 15 minutes left in the broadcast. Yes, ma'am. Um, I just want to say... Um... Um, soon after Michael Jackson was murdered, um, there was an article that came out where race soldiers with black, race soldiers with badges were claiming that they found naked pictures of children in his house. And um, a victim had posted that um, online that that um, that article. And I haven't seen the documentary, and I have no intention of, of doing any of that. But if there's one thing that I do know that I've noticed is that a lot of people are upset with um, Oprah Winfrey. And so, you know, the race soldiers, they have, you know, they have done their job in terms of keeping the focus off of them. It's like you can see that these white people, I mean, it's obvious that these white people, you, you see that there's a pattern, obviously, of these white people coming after or attacking all of these prominent black men and yet we're talking about Oprah. We shouldn't be talking about Oprah. We should be talking about white people. Um, and I think that's uh, all I wanted to say on that. I'll mute my line. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Much obliged, Ivy. They are masterful, uh, again, at just using other victims. Uh, and that's why it's so important to have uh, a code. Uh, it doesn't... <clears throat> I just haven't seen where it solves any problems to get focus our frustrations on another victim. We can sit around and call uh, Oprah Winfrey names. And I've seen that for decades. People can sit around and, and call her names. I don't see that where that's going to solve any problems. I don't see where that's going to help 
Michael Jackson any. I don't see how that's going to get us any closer to a permanent uh, solution to the problem. She is a victim of racism. And if it wasn't Oprah Winfrey, they could have picked any number of other victims and accomplished the exact same objective. Uh, other folks have commentary that they wanted to share? Yeah. Yes, sir. I, I, I think it's also uh, maybe possible that the racists have determined that uh, non-white people are developing more focus on the system of racist white supremacy. So, therefore, uh, they have to basically uh, refine, be more refined in their their uh, terrorism, their means to maintain and progress the system of racist white supremacy by by uh, what we witnessed with uh, the incident with Mr. Kelly and uh, uh, the late Michael Jackson situation with the uh, with quote unquote four non-white black people uh, in something uh, that used to be served and done by a white interviewer. Uh, so they may, maybe that's another one of their uh, means of uh, doing that sort of thing. I just thought of. Could be lots of methods all the way back to Joseph Goebbels. Lots of methods uh, to effectively uh, attack the Negro, promote racism, white supremacy. Uh, Any other comments folks want to make sure they get in? We have about 10 minutes left. Uh, Again, we'll be here on Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Oh, I think the time, I think the clocks go forward an hour. So everybody should, you know, make sure you get your rest. Whites will be moving the clocks forward one hour, unless I'm uh, mistaken, Uh, or at least for the folks in the States. This is when I'll be ready for workplace racism. Uh, It is a seven hour time difference uh, starting at 2 a.m. tonight uh, because the UK, they don't move their clocks until I think it's a week or so later. So Uh, but we'll be here Tuesday. Mohammed Abdul Rahim. The N word is no secret in the service talking about workplace racism and his time in the United States Secret Service, uh, the racism he experienced, the Miriam Carey shooting uh, and oh, and the Obama. Certainly uh, he was there during their tenure in the White House. So the racism uh, directed at them uh, at them as well. So looking forward to that. That's uh, Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific the cows Uh, other folks commentary last few thoughts they wanted to share before we conclude can I be heard yes ma'am um I was watching um I've um, started watching uh the documentary with Michael Moore um uh, 11 uh 9 and they had um Donald Trump in um in his documentary and they were basically exposing how his relationship with his daughter and how he's been making all these, how he could um, publicly, like, fill up on his daughter and make all these inappropriate uh, comments about, like, having wanting to have sex with his daughter and things like that. But yet and still, 
they can focus on like um, Michael Jackson, which um, Dave R. Kelly. We have all these other um, um, uh, race soldier suspects that have not even been brought to justice for, um, you know, them molesting children and doing um, all these other other things to people, you know, uh, the Me Too movement. No, none of them are being um, attacked. So, you know, um, like I said, like, I mean, it, it's to a point where he's like borderline, like, for incest and openly, like, um, making these types of comments about his own daughter. And nobody is even going after him. So it's just, you know, and also with what you said about um, with them telling us with medical apartheid, it's also shown in this documentary about Flint, the water crisis. Like the border, how the mayor actually, um, um, they they knew what they were doing. They were poisoning us on purpose. And I'm not even sure if this um, if Flint border crisis has, has been uh, resolved as of yet. I don't know if this border is still like it is, but I know they had... Um, they, the people were dying, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that this is still going on over there. So that's basically what I want to say. They can focus on us. Everything is all it's, it's attacking black men, but they will not attack any of these um, racial that have been known to um, uh, be involved in uh, uh, sexual assault and harassment and all these other situations that they're calling themselves. Um, blaming uh, black men for that's all I have. Mm. Much obliged. Life Lifetime could do a documentary and really play it up. Like, who are the people like by name, and where did they live at? The people that messed up the water in Flint, and the people that messed up the water in uh, Newark, because that's a major problem in lots of areas, especially areas where you have a lot of black people. Like, instead of you know us having an eight-hour documentary on O.J. Simpson. And then a 10 hour documentary on R. Kelly and then a five hour documentary on Michael Jackson. And then I don't know who it'll be uh, next week. Somebody else, Jim Brown, maybe. I don't know. Uh, they'll pick another black person. Stefan Clark and all his tweets about black females. Uh, why don't we get to solving, you know, some of the problems? Because I don't think any of these black people are in charge of anything. Some of them are dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, did any other folks have commentary that they wanted to share? I just wanted to um, make it clear that um, when I made this statement about uh, the race soldiers claiming that they found um, naked pictures of children um, in Michael Jackson's house after he died, that um, I'm convinced that Michael Jackson was innocent. Um, and, of course, you'll find pictures when he when he's dead. You couldn't, you couldn't find them when he was alive. And the one thing that I'm wondering, and I'm, I wonder if um, black men wonder, wonder this as well, what what is it that white people are planning to do with black men where they're just attacking you all um, all at once like this and trying to turn everyone against you and to brain trash everyone against you so that whatever it is that they do, if they throw you in prison like they did Bill Cosby, if they murder you like they did Michael Jackson and so many others, no one will care because they have already um, – destroyed your reputation and, and brain trashed everyone against you and made everyone think that you are, you know, a villain and all of that. So I just wonder with all of these attacks on Chris Brown and just so many, um, what, what was his name? Um, the driving Morgan Freeman and just everyone, like what is it that these white people are planning with, with all of these attacks all at once? That was it. I'm in my life. Thanks everyone. Thanks Gus. Morgan Freeman. 
they mentioned driving Miss Daisy. Uh, I thought Michael Jackson was found innocent in a court of law. Like that, you know, seems to be totally erased. Like I, th- I guess they were just they spent all that time, and those trials cost a lot of money. Like uh, they generally, sometimes they'll spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. You got to have security and bailiffs and a stenographer, and you got to feed the jury and have them in a motel and get them lunch and Starbucks every other hour. I mean. That's a lot of money. Are they saying all that was worthless? That they uh, they let a child rapist go free in California? They had all that time and weeks and evidence and everything and the prosecutor and everything and, and they got it wrong? And his present accusers helped Michael Jackson to be innocent in that trial. Mm-hmm. System of racism. Yeah, white supremacy. I'm sorry, ma'am. I said uh, it sounds like they did, like Ivy said. It sounds like they're planning something. Like you know, it's a, it's this is all for something a bigger uh, plan. It's like you know, it's it's a setup. So by the time when they do whatever it is that they really want to do, it like she, it's you know they had will will have already um, put in the minds of the uh, of the public of, of the image of how they want us to be seen. So when they do get rid of or whatever they have planned for, um, you know, black men, everybody, nobody will feel sorry for you anyway because they already are, are using propaganda and all the, you know, all their methods to make us look like we're not women. So, I, I don't know, like what you said, I, it, it's a tactic that they've been using since forever. So, yeah. Uh, any last comment or folks satisfied? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So your question about the food uh, choices that I've made uh, reminded me that I cooked some, or, yeah, I cooked some broccoli, um, and I had a whole pot of broccoli. I just filled my, you know, filled my stomach with broccoli uh, since I last spoke. Um, but I don't just rely on my mom's cooking, but I do love my mom's cooking, but I do cook myself. Um, but I'll just do like a whole pot of broccoli and eat that or, you know, a whole pot of something. So I'm not very good at it. So, but the other thing is, um, yes, um, white people are, uh, preparing something. Uh, yes, these are steps. I see them doing these initiations and all that sort of thing. And, um, and yes, and, uh, we need to be prepared and 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 really serious about stopping white people. Uh, yes, very serious about things that are serious. Solving the problem that is uh, the most serious thing uh, that we are facing currently: uh, black people, victims of white supremacy in total. Uh, again, we'll be here Tuesday, eight p.m. Eastern, seven p.m. Central, five p.m. Pacific. Uh, Mr. Muhammad Abdul Rahim, uh, the N word is no secret. Is no secret in the service. His book uh, will talk about Miriam Carey, the Obamas, white supremacy, racism, workplace racism. A little bit early, uh, but that'll be Tuesday. Uh, if you have questions, gripes, guest uh, suggestions, questions about the California 
Yoga Retreat July 3rd through July 7th. Drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Much obliged for everyone tuning in. I hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Let's do everything we can to protect our brain computers so that we can form new concepts, solutions to the problem. Racist man, racist woman, racist child. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, driver or passenger. Let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.